Welcome to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for La La Land. My name is Tom Chick. I am here with Christian Molotsky. Uh, for this uh, episode, you can just uh, refer to me as Andrew Ridgely. Man, I don't understand that one. You're going to have to explain that one to me later, Dingus. But first, let me introduce with a La La Land tagline or two, Kelly Wand. La 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 la. <laughs> wow. See that coming. Kelly Wan, do you have something a little more highbrow? Finally, a movie. <sighs> what? Uh, what? That's finally, that's a movie. That's quite yeah, the. Finally, tag. a movie. Finally, a movie. All right. Just put that above the title. Like Game of Thrones brand. Now, was there more that we didn't hear because the internet cut you off, or was that the whole tagline? That was the whole tagline. I was trolling the internet. Ah, I see. Cut off anyway. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight fire with fire and cut myself off. So is it just those two taglines for La La Land? Because it's not giving the studio a lot to work with. Uh, it's like Gangster Squad, but set in L.A. <laughs> Sometimes, Kelly Wan, you have four taglines for a movie. Is that the case this week? It's like crazy, stupid love, but without Foxcatcher's nose. Oh. Wait. What are you saying, wait? Did you see Crazy, Stupid Love? No, but you you moaned when I said it. Yeah, it's terrible. Oh, okay. But this is just a tagline. You're not watching the movie. I know, but you reminded me of how bad Crazy, Stupid Love was. But Tom hasn't even seen that movie, so it doesn't matter. Have Wait, I, I haven't seen what movie? Crazy Stupid Love. What are you talking about? I have. I just said you walked that. out of it. Oh, uh, really? I've since seen the other parts. So. Oh, you did. Oh, you've uh, you've cobbled them together. All right, I did my homework. Uh, Kelly, one. There have been times. They're rare, but there have been times you've had five taglines for a movie. Does La La Land merit a fifth tagline? No. All right. In that case, Dingus, let's just get down to brass tacks. Don't spoil it yet. Hey. uh... Yes, Kelly Wand. Quick question. When Sorry. you walked out at Crazy Stupid Love, did huh? the baby that you told to be quiet cheer? Like, ha, ah, you suck. Get out of here. No one so glad we held for that, Kelly Wand. That was really worth it. Okay, what were you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> Dingus, what movie did we see this week? Don't spoil anything about it. Tell the listeners the basics about what we did see this week. All right, this week we saw La La Land. Hmm. A 2016 American romantic musical comedy drama movie that is a cross between Dangerous Minds and The O.C. It was written and directed by Damien Chazelle and stars Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling, Rosemary DeWitt, J.K. Simmons, Claudine Claudio, and John Legend. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Just all of them. Oh. Uh, La La Land is rated PG-13 for some language. Kelly Wand, is there anything that should be added to that? Hey, they got off pretty easy. I would have added some jaywalking, breaking and entering, excessive car horn, and thematic elements. <laughs> what thematic elements would you have cautioned the uh, parents about? Well, people singing in public. That's... <laughs> You don't want to give children the wrong expression about uh, yeah, the Yeah, they start about. doing that. Right. It'll never stop. Right. It's like an epidemic. Yeah. Uh, La La Land is uh, 93 on both Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. How's that for symmetry? Hmm. So that's a it, 186. 
uh, what? Yeah, uh, 186, sure, you could put it that way. All right. If you add a Rotten Tomatoes percentage and a Metacritic rating together, what would you call that, Kelly Wand? Um, a B minus? <laughs> well, interestingly enough, idiots aren't, uh, their opinion isn't really. The studios don't care about their opinion. It's not meriting a cinema score <laughs> poll because it had a limited release and it's it's eventually getting into more theaters. So a cinema score can't sit down and say, "Oh, this is the weekend it opens. Let's see what idiots think." So no cinema score rating for stuff like this or Manchester. Idiots Vice. aren't the target demographic. Exactly, the target demographic is uh, Academy Award uh, members of the Academy, basically. Old people. Because La La Land is up for all sorts of awards, let me just read this off to you. At the point we're recording, the Oscars have not been announced yet, the nominations. However, the Golden Globes, which tend to be uh, a, a sort of a bellwether for the Academy Awards, those have been announced. Like Iowa. La La Land. It's the Iowa, exactly, sure. Uh, or the New Hampshire. Uh, uh, La La Land is currently nominated for basically, in the Golden Globes, uh, Best Picture, Best Performance for Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. Uh, Damien Chazelle has Best Director nomination. Uh, his script has a Best Screenplay nomination. Uh, Justin Hurwitz has a Best Score nomination. City of Stars has a nomination for Best Original Song. Uh, so definitely Oscar bait. Uh, and the uh, foreign, Hollywood Foreign Press Association has risen to the bait, and it's got a bazillion Golden Globe nominations. So that said, my work here is done, and it is now Kelly Wan's turn to give us the la 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 Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting when you get it right, <laughs> and devastating when you get it wrong. I would, like thank, oh, God, I would like to thank no, the no. Academy. I'd like to thank my agent. See, Bellwethers. The, the producers of the La 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 Lapsus. You'd like to thank the Golden Globes. And mostly I'd like to thank Kelly Wand. And Richie yes. Valens. Oh, ooh, too soon. Um, okay, here's that thing you said. Yes. <laughs> Some motorists get bored on a freeway on-ramp while listening to Edward Murrow describe World War II. Suddenly, they all get out of their cars and start dancing while highway patrolmen look on in horror and begin drawing their guns. They're all, we're stuck in traffic and our AC's broken, but at least the sun's out and we're not in Pomona. <laughs> a homeless person stands up and does a triangle solo. As he's arrested, everyone locks themselves out of their cars and starts dancing again while they sing... We're not characters in this movie. We're just here to freak you out. Shooting this caused a real traffic jam. There's a cleanser called Zout. Some words are all la 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 lapsus. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> the cameraman trips over the guardrail and falls into Emma Stone's car. She's all great back to back movies where I have to do monologues all in one shot. A manly handshake ensures. She checks the script on the passenger seat. Ensues. Fuck it. Kelly, you can't even get your lines right. <laughs> manly hand like handshakes do tend to ensure certain things, though. So that's fair enough. Wait, no, that's her. Wait, you just said manly, manly. Oh handling. shoot, that's Kelly. I got it. Okay, you, you were acting she so well. The line. Was you. Yeah, you so adopted the character. No, it's written that way. <laughs> Very good. Emma's all, a manly handshake ensures. She checks the script on the passenger seat. Ensues. Fuck. 
Only I wrote every movie. She checks the script again. Every film. Fuck. <laughs> Only I wrote every film. Speaking of which, making Freaky Friday with Jamie Lee Curtis was an honor. She checks the script again. A disaster. Fuck. That'll be 280 for the latte. She checks the script. Fuck. I don't say that yet. Suddenly, Ryan Gosling pulls up alongside her, honks his horn for 10 minutes, suddenly realizes she's watching him, then drives off in terror when she flips him off. She scowls angrily and goes, I should have fucked him. Ten minutes later, she's behind a cash register and barista gear going, that'll be 280 for the latte. Fuck. No, wait, that's right. Yeah. I mean, nothing for you since you're famous. Her customer smiles. I think it's Mary Gross from SNL. She's all, please keep the change and the latte. She sashays outside into a golf cart while all the male baristas stare open-mouthed at her receipt. Emma Stone's job is to get stuff spilled on her and to tell her boss at the Warner Brothers Starbucks on a daily basis that she has to leave hours early because she has an audition. Which I guess means it's not for a Warner Brothers project. Her boss is all, okay, I'm so long. Look out for Ryan Gosling there. You're about to meet cute right into him. <laughs> Thanks, boss. You know, I think I'd make a good writer, actually, since I'm super perceptive. Wah! You stupid bitch, look what you did in my coconut milk. Ten minutes later, Emma Stone. <laughs> oh, God. Here we go. Look who's back. Look who's back. <laughs> That's how he talks. I'm just holding a mirror up. The Gosling darkly. Ten minutes later, Emma Stone, wearing army fatigues, stands in a casting office going, Rebellions are founded on hope. This is our chance to make a difference. <laughs> the time to fight is now. The Empire's bad. A coded Imperial transmission indicates a major weapons test is imminent. Papa, thank you for making a Death Star for me to constantly run away from. Next! To celebrate, Emma Stone lives with three girls who all wear different colored dresses. They dance outside while their neighbors water the lawn and yawn. Eventually, they start singing. Tonight, we're going to a party off screen. Let's all take separate cars. We'll forget to read parking signs and walk home under the stars. <laughs> Ten hours later, Emma Stone stares at a parking sign where her car used to be. The sign just says winter. She's all, great. Her phone explodes, so she walks from Simi Valley to San Pedro in her sexy purple dress and high heels at 3 a.m. to zero interest from any males. Suddenly, she stops between a couple red neon CGs and hears piano music for the first time. She goes inside and finds herself in a restaurant owned by J.K. Rowling. Ryan Gosling's playing a piano. She's all, oh. A young man sitting at a table behind her is all, Hey, girl in the purple dress, would you move your ass out of the way, please? I can't see that music I find so boring. Eventually, she gives him the right finger. Finally, Gosling climaxes his musical solo with a blast of car horn, then stops playing, which the relief and scattered applause of the horrified bar patrons. J.K. Rowling comes over and says stuff to him we're not allowed to hear yet. Emma Stone waits till they're done, then walks up to Gosling and goes, Hey, I really liked whatever instrument that is you were playing. How does it work? Is there a little man inside the case, or is it a woman? He smashes into her, spilling a drink all over again, then shoves his way angrily out the exit. She scowls after him and goes, Man, once I fuck him, that shit's not only going to happen once a day. Some words on a parking sign are all winter again, but this time from Gosling's character's tow zone. 
Gosling's his nice guy's character again, sans stash. He comes home to find that his sister's Rita Moreno. She's all, hey, good news, I sold all your furniture. <laughs> you know, Rita Moreno. Yeah, a boy like Her that. Looks like that, yeah. Yeah. Your brother. West Side Story. Yep. Annoyed, he gently grabs a milking stool from a shelf and gently sets it at the top of the stairs. Shh. This is the stool I was sitting in when I heard El Balanero for the ninth time. <laughs> Golden Club. <laughs> She's all. Speaking of which, I want to set you up with these two twins. One of them's awesome. She's dead, though. Does she like jazz? Either way, not interested. Well, I guess this is my character's last scene. Do I at least get to sing? But Gosling's already at work. <laughs> J.K. Rowling's all. All right, Gosling, stop playing beautiful piano solos. Not my tempo. People don't like to use ears when they eat. Stick to chopsticks in your car horn. Here, I made a set list. He hands Gosling a blank sheet of paper. I guess this is the first job my character's ever had. Well, tell yourself whatever you want to hear. He walks off screen to say hilarious shit we can't hear. Gosling sighs miserably, sits at the piano, and plays a couple random notes, then bangs his head into the keys a few times. Rowling whistles, drops a $100 bill into Gosling's tip jar, tearing up a little. Suddenly, Gosling gets bored, makes the lights go down with his mind, while he accidentally plays a symphony. The crowd yawns, one by one. One annoyed woman's all, Hey, that music was so good, I just stabbed myself in the eye with my fork. Her husband's all, Boo! Rowling walks up to Gosling as Emma Stone enters behind him. Rowling's all. You're fired. Your eyes don't mean what you have in your head in my face. <laughs> also, this is a player piano. Like on Westworld. Gosling scowls and storms off. Emma Stone's all. Whatever I said the first time we shot this, he smashes into her, spilling a drink on her, and stomps out. Rowling's all. Actually, that was a good exit. He points another hundred in Gosling's jar. Emma Stone's furious. Her eyes are all. Oh, and I fucked that guy. A word's all, springopsis. Since J.K. Rowling's diner was the only piano gig in town, Gosling's forced to take a humiliating job in a Devo tribute band that plays pool parties held by baristas. Emma Stone's friends all, Hey, how are your auditions going? And your drink spills with Gosling. Emma Stone's all, Yeah. If I wrote my own one-woman play about me in Paris, it'd solve the Gosling issue. Her friends all, Speaking of which, she points at Gosling playing a guitar on stage made out of small pianos. They're playing Radar Love. Emma Stone's all, I'll show him who no one spills drinks on me twice and doesn't have sex with me. Hey, band, do a song about Iran. Ten hours later, Thank you for your tips, ladies, especially the nickels. Ugh, it's you. Hello, Gosling. That's right, it's me. And I don't need a man in my life. She defiantly spills a drink on herself. Actually, I think I'm engaged to a banker who wants to have our honeymoon in Nicaragua. So, <laughs> speaking of which, would you mind getting my car keys? I don't want to sleep at the valet. It's a Prius. Gosling opens the drawer and looks at all the keys. All of them have Prius written on them and also Emma Stone's name. He's <laughs> all. Mine's the one with the spilled drink on it. Eventually, Gosling figures it out, but they lose their cars and wind up walking around in Hollywood Hills. She's all, by the way, I think jazz sucks, except for Starlight Express and the theme song to Friends, or at least that part where they clap. 
I want to open my own jazz club and make people listen to whatever I want. <laughs> That's my motivation. The only food on the menu would be J.K. Rowling. Maybe talking's not our strong suit. She starts dancing along the cliff's edge and sings, I think my character's from Nebraska, so what if I've never written before? What do you think, Gosling? Who asked ya? When it was much more than a hunch. Gosling licks a lamppost and goes, My sister tried my favorite chair to sell. Everyone laughs at me when I try to say pianist. The people trying to sleep around here want me to go to hell. Something, something stars. <laughs> Emma, I've never lost my car with almost anyone. Please do me the honor of seeing the motion picture Gangsta Squad tomorrow night with me at the Rialto. I'm sure I have nothing else going on during that time, but if anything comes up, I won't call you. The next night at Emma Stone's engagement dinner, I love Doctor Strange's character till the car accident. <laughs> <laughs> but the only thing about Nicaragua was all those stupid trees. <laughs> the guy at another table is all, and tourists. Emma Stone suddenly realizes the restaurant's Muzak sounds just like Gosling's car horn. She stands up and goes, excuse me, Sean, I know I told you last night that I wanted to spend the rest of our lives together, but I just realized I'm dumb. She runs out. Eventually, the boyfriend's all, Emma, you goonie. At the Rialto, a heartbroken Gosling feeling stood up, sighs at the ticket seller. He's all, of all the movies to have to sit through stag. He goes inside and starts watching Gangster Squad. He sighs, looks at the empty seat beside him, and spills a drink on it, but it's just not the same. I'm over here, dummy, Emma says from his other side. He sighs and buys another drink to spill on her, but gets thirsty on his way back to his seat, so he settles for just throwing the cup at her. Gosling points at the screen and goes, oh, uh, here comes my favorite part. The words Gangster Squad come on screen. Suddenly the projector breaks and the film burns up and the projectionist gets demoted. Beside Emma, Dingus stands up and goes, Splice! <laughs> no. Really? <laughs> that happened too, I thought. Emma's all, Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to have sex instead. Gosling's all, I got a better idea. He gives her arm a bone-popping yank and drags her uphill to Griffith Park Observatory. Since it's suddenly 5 a.m., everything's closed, so Gosling playfully kills a security guard, and while she giggles, jokingly teaches himself how to operate the star projector. It breaks, too. Gosling's all, don't worry, we still have the power of our imagination. Their imagination consists of flying around. <laughs> Eventually, she tries to kiss him, but he goes for the handshake. A word's all <laughs> some opposites. <laughs> Gosling spends his evening muttering the word City of Stars out at the ocean until the tide loses interest. Then he tries to steal an old black guy's wife. The tide wins. Gosling stalks away from the black couple, grumbling. We co-opt you guys' music, we you guys' wives, we just can't win. Suddenly, John Legend walks on screen. He's all, yo, man, we need a keyboardist for our new jazz perversion band, The Messengers. Because if our reviews wind up sucking, at least no one blames The Messengers. I have too much integrity to play for people not eating food. Pays a zillion a day. Show me where to kneel. 
<laughs> to celebrate his degradation, Gosling eavesdrops on a phone conversation between Emma Stone and her mom. <laughs> yeah, he's going to open his own club, so it's pretty cool. Um, jazz? Well, he says it's going to be awesome. Gosling. No, just one O. <laughs> No, no, no. Jupiter Ascending was chanting Tatum. Look, I gotta go. <laughs> I just heard him drop the glass he had to the wall, and that's our last good one. No, glass. I don't love you either. Bye. She hangs up and runs into the bathroom where Gosling's picking glass out of his face. He's all, tell your mom I said she never made anything good either. How's your movie script coming? I told you, it's not a movie. It's a one-woman play about me in a Paris apartment complaining about how no one listens. It's something I've wanted to write ever since my car got towed. By the way, I'm famous now. I play my car horn on John Legend's new album. It's called Jazz Corruption, A New Thing by John Legend with Brian Gosling on horn. <laughs> We're in concert right now, actually. Some t-shirt cannons go off in Emma Stone's face. On stage, John Legend's all. Now for our next number. He fires a super laser into the crowd while Gosling and the bassist turn away in shame and also from the brightness. The crowd cheers that explodes. A guy in the crowd's all, Hey, look, it's Emma Stone here in the mosh pit with us. Boo! Everyone shoves it in the back of the auditorium. Get out of here. Wants to dance with you. Gosling smiles at her sadly and has his butler spill a drink on her, but the empty cup he jams on her head just feels hollow inside. A word's all, Autumnopsis. Emma comes home to find Gosling trying to extinguish a bouquet of roses on fire and trying to trap a pigeon in the oven. Surprise! You have another scene with me! <laughs> he makes her eat some of his food, then goes, I'm going on tour again in the morning for the rest of the millennium, so you can tell your mom to shut the hell up. Look, Gosling, I love the music you're doing. I think it's the best music I've ever heard, but it's terrible. CinemaScore gives it an A-. minus. <laughs> Why didn't you form a band with Bruno Mars? Jesus. Maybe you only slept with me because you got me and J.K. Rowling mixed up. So? Eventually, they break up without resorting to song. The next night, Emma Stone's play opens. It's a disaster. Gosling forgets he had a photo shoot conflict at the same time and also to mention this to his girlfriend. <laughs> uh, we've all been there. Pauline Kael's withering review of Stone's play in Variety the next day doesn't help. The headline's all, only sympathetic character in Stone's play was the empty chair reserved for Gosling I sat beside and had sex with afterwards. Emma Stone puts all the furniture she stole from Gosling in her trunk and tearfully tries to get into her car while Gosling's all, look, for what it's worth, the photo shoot went great. It's cropped me out. <laughs> I can't even pay the theater because I spent all my money on that CG Eiffel Tower prop. I'm moving back to San Fernando. I'm not even going to work at all. Just live at home. Co-write a new play with Lohan. Fuck it. Gosling tries to spill a drink on her, but her window's rolled up. He watches sadly as she drives off a cliff. Five years pass. Suddenly, Emma Stone wakes up in bed to hear a car horn blast to feel the drink spilled on her. Gosling's all, Hollywood called. You have an audition in the morning. I guess they saw you screaming at me after your play bombed and thought it was funny. Emma Stone's all, I'm done with that life. Quitting work for Heigl, but after sleeping for 10 hours, she forgets she said this and gets into Gosling's car. To motivate her, he lays on the horn the whole way to Hollywood. <laughs> 10 hours later, 
Hello, Miss Stone. Thanks for coming in. We want to make a trilogy about a woman who gets drinks spilled on her, but we want to mix drinks around the actress. Just to make sure we're investing $300 million prudently in your literary talent, we'd like you to verbally tell us a story right now about Paris. Go. Emma Stone thinks for 10 minutes, then goes, my grandma met Paris once. She said she looked like she had some work done. As the electrician wisely turns out all the lights in the studio, except the spotlight on Emma, she's all, I will be what I can dream. Can I say what I feel I sound like? Believing in myself got me this far. Why would I ever fart? She does a mic drop. All the casting agents slump over dead. A word's all winopsis. So the next day, Emma Stone's married to the Nicaraguan and has three kids by him. <laughs> to celebrate, that night they get on a freeway on-ramp. Emma stares out the window at all the singing, dancing people trapped in their cars singing about sunlight. She shakes her head and goes, I sure don't miss this. Her husband's all, hey, look, a jazz club called Seb's. Ugh. You know, ordinarily, I hate jazz. Let's go check it out, though. Emma, feeling deja vu, follows her faceless husband into the club, and there's Gosling, playing piano, just like always, pretending to play it. As he plays, Emma Stone fantasizes that her life with Gosling was awesome and that their kids turned out better looking than her real kids. When she wakes up, the preacher on the bridge nods, and the platform beneath her drops, and she's hanged in front of the Hollywood sign. The end. Wow, that was abrupt. <laughs> Whoa, what just happened? What about the whole finale? The whole musical finale? Yeah. You just cut it. Uh, too long, too long. <laughs> I was getting too I, crazy. I'd forgotten that you do a mean Gosling. It's like Popeye, but handsome. <laughs> Smoldering. Or Charlie of the Box. Well, I was ugly, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't care what I thought. As All right, well, Dingus, you're our musical expert. You're the one who's done musical theater, and you know a bunch of musicals. You would know. You, unlike me, would be able to pick Gene Kelly out of a lineup. Uh, <laughs> how, what do you think of this movie? Does it deserve these Golden Globes? How does it work as a musical? What's going on with Dingus and La La Land? Uh, am I supposed to do my over-under now, too? Oh, yeah, well, sure. By way of, and yeah, give us an over-under by way of explaining how much or whether you like this thing. All right, I'm crazy about this. I'm totally... I'm totally down with this. I love this so much. Uh, I'm head over heels for this thing. Um, so my under, and it's very, very close because I really, really love this musical. And I tried not to do musicals, but I couldn't help it. So my under would be uh, Down With Love, uh, which is a, which is a movie I absolutely am crazy about. God, I don't even think of Down With Love as a musical, but it is, isn't it? It totally is. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's and it's actors who can totally sing and handle it. Um, Ewan McGregor is great at this type of thing. Uh, he's he's he shows it in Moulin Rouge and he shows it in Down with Love. He's really really good at it, and Renee Zellweger handles it just fine too. Um, but it's about uh, an industry that I don't really or about a different city. It's about it's in New York somewhere else. It's very uh, East Coast, yeah. Bourgeois. It's very East Coasty. It's it's very much that that kind of like compacted city, where this is this this movie for me is much more like uh, a Los Angeles version of Manhattan. To be quite honest, it's it's much more expanded. So uh, I, I would put down with love on the lower end of the spectrum, but just barely. I mean, I'm I'm crazy about this movie, and over it, 
uh, and this is going to be rather telling, I would put Singing in the Rain, um, uh, mainly because of the, uh, the, the way that the movie, this movie, uh, the way that La La Land, uh, does that, that tap dance thing after the party. Uh, I so am in love with that scene. I'm so in love with the way that that whole scene is structured. I would love, I hope we talk about that more. Um, and uh, I think about that in the same mental space as I think about um, the good morning, good morning uh, sequence uh, or scene or musical number in Singing in the Rain. Now, Singing in the Rain is one of my most favoritest movies ever. It's the movie that I turn to when I'm feeling blue. Um, it's a movie that I can show anybody or sit down with or just have on in the background or, and just watch, uh, mainly because of that scene, but because of a bunch of other things in it. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely nuts about La La Land. Kelly Wan, I went to see this with Dingus and there was a, uh, a Dingus ejaculation in this movie, a ver- verbal one, uh, during that tap dance scene, like right before Dingus stood up and went, Oh yeah. And he did like both fists in the air. It was amazing. I couldn't believe it. Just like out loud, standing up. Uh, so Dingus, I could tell you liked that scene. What was that Kelly Wan? What made him do that? Uh, I think as soon as the tap dancing started, I meant to make a note of where that was, but I wasn't taking notes at that point. Uh, uh, so I think it was right around the tap dancing. Dingus, you do remember that. You're going to cop to this, aren't you? Or are you going to oh, yeah, deny like your nice thing? I'm happy to cop to it now, and I will deny it later. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, all right. Well, when, Kelly, when she changes when she changes shoes and that things, and I realize where they're going. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to say that at least emotionally, I was doing exactly what you say. Well, there was there was a verbal outburst. Nothing, oh, yeah. like, nothing like nearly as egregious as when the, the Enterprise rose out of the clouds, but I definitely was like, oh, yeah, Dingus is into this, and everyone in the theater knows. <laughs> right. Well, but this is no Star Trek. Uh, right. Sure. Yeah, of course. Right. It's more like a Star Wars, I would say. Ooh. Kelly Wand, uh, I don't know where you are on musicals. I think you and me just sort of sit in the corner when Dingus talks about how awesome musicals are. Uh, so how does this one work for you? Uh, you were enthusiastic. You saw it before we did. You were enthusiastic about us doing it for the podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So what are your over and under, and how do you feel about this thing? Well, my over is Singing in the Rain, too. You which I had say, oh, there's a sequel. Seen. I didn't realize there I was a I didn't sequel. know that either, yeah. It's, it's way better, too, because it's way darker. <laughs> and uh, some people so wait, say they should have flashbacks. Also, you also like Singing in the Rain? Yeah, but I hate musicals. I still stand by that. So okay. I can't be trusted. Um, but Singing in the Rain, I saw right afterwards, and I see why. Because a lot of the reviews for La La Land, like, people say what detracts from is that I think there was an LA Weekly review I read where they go, it's like, as dancers, they move like actors. And that's true. And they all, all it's like none of the songs are catchy like they are in Singing in the Rain. But you get other things in exchange. Because it's like, Singing in the Rain they're not even human. They're like elves in that movie. Like, <laughs> I should see this movie. Is it as good as Battle of Five Armies, the Lord of the Ring, the Hobbit movie? It's funny. I watched that too last week. <laughs> I say so. so they're right. like elves and singing in the rain. All right. Okay. They're just, they're, they're preternaturally cheerful all the time. And yet it's not annoying. Like it's not creepy. It's like, uh, it's like a Christmas cheer. It's like kind of what Dingus is talking about. And it is about movies, but it's lighter. And something I liked about La La Land is it's kind of dark, and it's sort of a bittersweet thing. And I just liked their characters, and the kind of, it was just kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. 
which I, which I like. I think that's what tricks me to liking musicals, Singing in the Rain notwithstanding. So was your, was your under also a musical? Did you do a dingus and sandwich it in musicals? Did you make a La La Land sandwich? Uh, yeah, my under, I guess, is Moulin Rouge, because that's the other musical that I kind of like, and it's also kind of a bummer. And it, was, it wasn't like anything I'd ever seen before, so that made me like it. And this was like that, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I said, I can't be trusted. Like the thing, When people watch La La Land, they go, oh, it's not as good as Singing in the Rain. Like, I don't really... It, it's like reading a locked room mystery. Like the fact that I hardly ever do it makes them kind of more interesting to me. Like I come in as a novice and go, "Oh yeah, okay." So right. sure. Um, so I bought into this movie maybe more than a musical enthusiast would. It's a good musical for people who hate musicals. Okay, so yeah, maybe, I would go with that because I, I'm also not a musical fan. I mean, musicals yeah. don't tend to work for me. I, you know, I can appreciate them. I and mean, like a Dingus mentioned, Just down with love. I, I love I like Down with Love a lot. Uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch I think is a, a, a great musical. Um, I just don't tend to gravitate to them. Like I see Chicago and that just bounces off me. I couldn't tell you the first thing about that movie. I mean I know some of the tunes. I know plenty of Cole Porter tunes just through like cultural osmosis. So I know a lot of this stuff, but it's not for me. It's it's not my bag. Uh, so for for this my over under for this. Um, you guys remember, so you mentioned Doctor Strange earlier, Kelly Wand. There's the bit in Doctor Strange where Benedict Cumberbatch is talking to Tilda Swinton, and he's like, oh, science and rationality, and I don't believe all your, your mumbo-jumbo, Eastern nonsense, holistic magic stuff. He's kind of got his arms crossed in front of her, and he's totally not into it. And she, like, smacks him in the chest, and it knocks him out of himself. Uh, and he's like... <laughs> has this sort of like these visions and he comes back and he's like, whoa, okay, there is magic. That's what this movie did to me. I, 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 I don't know that I'm going to be very capable of talking about it because this really was, for me, the closest I've experienced to, to magic in a long time. Uh, I was super into opera for a while. I mean, I still am. I love opera. And when I discovered opera, it, it was like that. It was like magical. And I, I didn't come to opera from a technical perspective. I was never a singer. I just loved the story and this kind of heightened reality that operas would create, and that felt like magic to me. Uh, and I've never really been able to talk about operas critically, but I know that I love them. This is... I, I have not experienced anything like this movie since discovering operas when I was in my 20s. Uh, I, I am just flabbergasted by how much this means to me. I almost did the over-under thing like I did last year with Fury Road where I said I, I don't have an over. And I kind of stand by that. I think Fury Road is the non-parallel of – like there's, there's no action movie as good as Fury Road. I stand by that. But I was going to do that with this and say I don't, I, don't, I don't have an over. I can't possibly come up with an over. But instead what I'm going to do – is I'm going to tell you about other movies that meant a lot to me because of the interaction between the two characters. Because every moment they were together, I couldn't take my eyes off of them. Every like glance and lean and brushing of fingers and the way they look at each other. I was just enraptured by it in these three movies I'm going to tell you about. And I'm going to rank them not necessarily in order of quality, but in order of how the actor's physicality really expressed that. And Kelly, I love that line that, that you quoted about these – in this movie, they move more like actors than dancers because I think that explains a lot of why I'm responding to it. But in these three movies, in order of how their physicality is part of the acting and in order of magicalness, uh, 
La La Land is slightly below Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon for me, in that the relationship between Chow Yun-Fat and Michelle Yeoh's character, I just couldn't take my eyes off of them. And the way that physicality was expressed and the different characters expressed their emotions in the fight scenes in that, when I first saw Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that first opening fight between Michelle Yeoh and the younger princess chick who's in the, the black ninja stuff and she's trying to steal the green destiny – that was literally breathtaking. Like when that scene ended, I realized I, I hadn't been breathing. Uh, and, and La La Land did that to me several times. Uh, and then slightly under in terms of being just so enraptured by the relationship between the characters and the physicality wasn't as prominent, but it was there, uh, is Punch Drunk Love. Um, just watching Adam Sandler and Emily Watson in that, I, it, was just almost, it was just an amazing example of, of, of actors. And there was this magicalness that uh, P.T. Anderson puts in Punch Drunk Love. So I feel there's some of that in why I respond so much to La La Land. Uh, Kelly Wan, you say there, that you didn't feel the music was catchy in this. There's not a tune in this. Like I, I've seen this a few times. Each time I see it, I, I'm catching these little motifs that Justin Hurwitz is doing. They're basically five songs in La La Land, and they get spun into the jazz at times. At times, they're just little motifs playing in the, in the background. But each song to me, and maybe it's just because I've seen this so many times, each song to me has a, a very specific melody that gets play, put in very specific places to make very specific statements throughout the movie. Uh, I found all five songs, actually six, uh, really catchy. Um, I saw it once, and I haven't been able to like remember the tune since, so I just base it on that. Well, as in Singing in the Rain, I kind of remember Good Morning like a week later. How does but, Good Morning go? Like, would I not, Dingus, do it, sing a little morning. Good Morning. I think good I know morning. it, don't I? Good morning, good morning. You great to stay up late. Good morning, yeah, good morning to you. Guys, you guys are doing a terrible job of harmonizing, but I could tell what things was doing. So yeah, I do know that song. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm so happy that you brought up Punch Drunk Love because the that theme that that he plays throughout the the movie, the one that draws her into the club, the one that he constantly plays. Yeah, Sebastian's theme. Yep. Yes, uh, Seb's theme that he that he constantly plays through it reminded me so much of Punch Drunk Love's score. Right. It remi- it, 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 yeah. Yeah. It constantly it constantly pulled me into uh, in into this other world, and I'm so glad you brought up this idea of of how magic this made you feel because I felt the same way leaving Punch Drunk Love as I felt leaving this. When I left Punch Drunk Love, I, I went to see it with four people and they were all like, yeah, that, uh, that was fine. Or, or it was varying degrees of I hated this or that was fine. And I was ecstatic. And when I left this movie or when I was even in the middle of it, I, first of all, I mean, I was weeping through in, in just weird moments, like in that moment on, on the pier when he dances with, with that woman and the and the dude's like, hey, give me my wife back. I it just made me cry. I, I just out of joy. I was crying out of joy at so many weird times in this movie. I was just un I had uncontrollable emotions because of basically what you described, Tom. Uh, and it was it was a similar feeling to how I felt at the end of Punch Drunk Love. And and it, it's also like it. You know, Kelly, you said it's dark. Um, I'm not sure I would call it dark because there's a certain realism to it. But but it's also – it's astonishing to me that Damien Chazelle – and the guy is like in his 20s. I mean he's super young, and he's he's come here from New York. But he expresses so much of 
this idealism and this joyousness that Hollywood used to embody that I imagine is what a lot of the musicals touched on. Right. Uh, and, and he's not from here. Like he's not part of the L.A. system. He's a New Yorker. He went to Harvard. Like he's an he's a East Coast intellectual kid. Uh, and he comes here and he creates this, this joyous ode to what Hollywood is supposed to mean. It's not a period piece either. Uh, it's not a period piece, and yeah. we have been deconstructing Hollywood for so long, like with John Frankenheimer's Day of the Locust, uh, Robert Altman's The Player, the Coen Brothers and Barton Fink. I've seen so many deconstructions of how terrible and soul-crushing Hollywood is that it is so gutsy to me that Damien Chazelle makes this magical, colorful, loving ode to Hollywood. And as I was watching it the first time, too, I was wondering, well, how is he going to get himself? He's painted himself into this weird Pollyanna <laughs> corner where yeah. there's no way he can get out of this uh, without me just – this is just going to be a, a candy cane. This is going to be like syrup at the end. There's no way out of this. Yeah. And what he does, does with that third act and this whole idea of, of – of regret and memories and things that you know your life could have done. Uh, it's just yeah. more nuanced than a musical. It was just an amazing. Uh, it was almost like a maneuver or something that, that he introduced this to this story here. Um, yeah, and uh, so yeah, so so you call it dark, Kelly Wan, but I sort of think of it as acknowledging just the reality of heartbreak, even in magical situations, and you can still appreciate something and be idealistic and acknowledge that you know you're going to get your heart broken it's kind of the point of the you know the emotional climax in a way is is Emma Stone's audition that's the name of the song which is a, you know as she says like a tribute to fools and dreamers this creative impulse that people have like Damien Chazelle is so optimistic about that and he's so just not dark uh, about the creative impulse, which is surprising to me too, after seeing Whiplash. Like Whiplash has a definite right. edge to it, uh, and in a way, I wonder too: is it just okay? This is this kid from the East Coast. He does this movie about jazz music and how demanding the creative process is, and he hits it big, you know. And yeah. he's suddenly the toast of the town. He can do whatever he wants, and now he wants to, you know. To him, Hollywood is this beautiful, magical, happy, intricate thing. Uh, you know, is this would this have he may have made this movie if Whiplash didn't do so well? And I don't, I don't know one way or the well, other. What did we? We heard him like talking. We went to see it at the ArcLight, uh, and afterward, you can sit around after the credits and hear and, and see on the screen this like interview. And he talked about having started this and been working on it for twelve years with his. Who's the Who's the guy who did the music? Justin Hurwitz did the uh, the the music for that, and and for Whiplash, by the way. Justin Hurwitz is someone he went yeah. to school with, and. Uh, yeah. So, so what I appreciate about what Kelly Wan says about it being dark is that I think of this as a fairy tale, and I think about it having like uh, you know like I wouldn't call it a Hollywood fairy tale, but a Los Angeles fairy tale, um, mainly because I love living here and I I love the things about living here that this movie kind of embodies in, in, in many ways. Um, but you know, fairy tales can have a dark element to them. Uh, and so I, I like the way that, um, that the lighting plays with this and I kind of agree a little bit with what Kelly one is saying about it, having a dark element to it in, in that sort of fairy tale idea. Well, here's what, here's what I guess I would say. Uh, 
the word that I would avoid using and that I think sometimes people might infer when you call something dark, this movie isn't the least bit cynical. There is no cynicism whatsoever in La La Land. Very, very good, yeah. Uh, and so that like just gets bang bang. Cause yeah, but it's very sad. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a tragic ending. It's not a it's not a you know when you look at things as a comedy or tragedy. This is a, this is a tragedy. You know, the the small smiles that they exchange at each other. They're smiles at the very end, the last shots, but they're very sad smiles. Right. Um, are other musicals this good? <laughs> like, have I just you guys both put singing in the rain over this? I can't imagine. Singing in the Rain working for me the way this does. Like I, I, Singing in the Rain is that character actor from Towering Inferno. Well, you know, part of the difference I would say between dark and light is is more that of of weight rather than um rather than a, a measure of of light and dark. It's 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 a feeling of weight. And so, like uh, Chris Markinson, one of our uh, listeners who always writes in, said that it, it felt a little, it felt light to him, but he liked it. Um, another one of our listeners who wrote in, uh, his name is Chris Webb, and I have to, I should have said this right from the beginning, but we were also happy I didn't want to. Uh, he says I'm anticipating that I'll need to wear a poncho to protect myself from all the gushing you guys are about to do. Um, but I think that. There's a sense of uh, some musicals are light in weight and some musicals are more heavy in weight. And, and there's this, this sense of, of like mercury that goes throughout the temperature scale in, in a certain way. So like, uh, you know, I just went to see, um, Fiddler on the Roof the, the other night. Uh, and that that starts off light and then ends up super heavy and dark. Um, you, you know, West Side Story uh, has a has a lot of of weight to it, but it has some light moments as well. And I think that this, you know, uh, Singing in the Rain to me, uh, if if I think about it in terms of weight, feels lighter. Even though it has, uh, you know, heavier moments, but it feels like a lighter musical. But it doesn't feel as light as something like, I don't know, um, uh, Hello Dolly or something. I don't know. Uh, I don't or uh, uh, say anything. Uh, not say anything. Not uh, say anything. The one in the boat. I was actually in Anything Goes. I was actually in that silly thing. Um, or. You know, they have different weights to them, uh, and and this has a significant weight to it. And part of that is because of what Kelly Wan was saying that he had read in this uh, review about they what is it they they move more like actors than dancers. Is that what you said, Kelly? As dancers, they move like actors. <laughs> All right. Well, I. I really, really appreciate that about this because it, it feels like an obvious moment in that in that in that scene that I love so much that tapping scene where she where she sits there and he's wearing shoes that I have always wanted to own that pair of shoes by the way the pair of shoes he's wearing those I don't know if you call them spats or whatever they are I, I've always wanted to own that pair of shoes and when they sit down and she changes into shoes so that they can do a tap dance. I remember the first time when I was actually in a musical, the first musical I was in in college was Anything Goes, and I had to learn to, to tap dance, and I had to teach myself to do it, and I had to do it over Christmas vacation. I had to go to to my school and be in the dorm alone, just in this sad little cafeteria alone, 
teaching myself to tap dance and it's so hard to do and that these two actors did that and that they they acknowledge the fact that she's going to take off her heels because the you know the popular thing i think that ginger rogers said was you know or that was said about her is that uh, she did everything for the stair did but uh backwards in in heels um and that uh, Emma Stone, who is no Ginger Rogers, let's be honest, but she's really good, but she changes from her heels into the shoes that are just like his, and they do this great routine, and it might be elementary tap dance stuff, but I, I love that, I love everything they're doing, I love all of the dancing that they're doing, um, so I think it's more about weight than it is about light and darkness. Uh, was Kelly Wan coming in from Ham Radio? Kelly Wan, are you are you broadcasting in, into the podcast with Ham Radio right now? Uh, play his. It's a lot a lot of planes going overhead right now. Uh, over uh, copy Rod. Dad feel the Alexa. I know where the. Uh, all right. Well, there's Kelly Wand. Uh, so I guess I, I guess I went on and talked about musicals too much. I just get I'm really excited about this. No, no. I wanted to know, like, I, as, yeah. as someone who doesn't know musicals that well, like I, I don't. I think part of it too is this is so relatable to people who live in L.A. Ding, as you said, it was like a Manhattan for Los Angeles. Uh, obviously, Damon Damon Giselle again is, is a guy not from Los Angeles. He certainly manages to. And as you said, it's not just about Hollywood. You know, they do they have the Watch Towers in there and the Funicular, which is downtown. Uh, right. Like he's, he's, it's not just Hollywood. It's not just oh, the magic of the back lot. Like it's Los Angeles at large, and it's also not just uh, Hollywood and actors. It, no, the, you it's, know, it's Brian way for goodness sake. Yeah, and Brian Gosling's passion. Yeah. yeah, for the the fact that that half of the equation is about jazz and a dying art of jazz, which could maybe I don't know if it's a statement on musicals. He's obviously into Gene Kelly musicals and stuff, uh, but that that's not distinctly Los Angeles. I barely think of Los Angeles, of course, when I think of jazz. Who thinks of L.A. in that regard? Um, and yeah, that freeway thing. And so there's a joke where the writer at the pool party is talking about how he's been praised for his world building and he's getting a lot of heat. Uh, so there, I'm sure there's a certain irony there, but that opening number is an amazing example of world building. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we are in L.A. It is a traffic jam. Uh, you know, everybody is in his or her own car, isolated from everyone else, enjoying his or her own kind of cultural music, whatever they're listening to. Uh, and then he, this is the world that we know, but then he changes it up and he shows us, okay, well, this is the world where it's going to take place. And that musical number is... I, like, it's so irresistible, and it's astonishing to me that he was thinking at some points, and I know that this is how movies get made, that, that you know there were, there were cuts in the movie that didn't have that musical, where instead they just had an overture and credits, and then they felt like, well, we had the overture and the credits. If we have the musical, it's taking too long to get to introducing the characters, so we're just going to cut that opening scene on the freeway and go straight to the characters. And for a while, that was the cut of this movie that existed. Oh, uh, God. Which, yeah, it seems like, how how can you do this movie without just how astonishing that freeway sequence is? Uh, and I will say something else, and I'm, I'm sure this is true of other musicals, but it's certainly not true of movies we tend to see these days. I am so deeply thankful at how little he edited and how the the camera just let us watch the actors and 
let us appreciate that it was one take, and it wasn't like a gratuitous Scorsese thing, but it was like a thing where they had worked on this number, and we got to see it without watching it as if it was a movie, without an editor highlighting certain points or telling us where to look. Um, you know, there was great camera movement, and it was certainly appropriate, but the fact that it never cut, I loved. I loved that so much, and it made such a difference. You know, that whole sequence where they're walking in her car, the musical number, what a, a lovely mm-hmm. night. Just the, the progression of that, the fact that it never cuts from when they walk up and he does a little twirl around the lamppost to when they do a reverse <laughs> shot to her car. That's got to be like I don't know, 10 minutes or whatever of, of one shot and them doing. They never leave the frame. I don't know if there's any CG trickery, but it's, it's one shot of them doing this musical number and the singing and stuff. It was just amazing to me, and it made such a difference for me. Yeah, me too. It made me, it, well, it just gave me such joy. It just filled me with joy, and that's you know what you, the joke you made about me earlier. I was just so full of joy for that whole thing. I mean, this movie just filled me with joy. Yeah. Uh, even when I was crying, it filled me with joy. I mean, uh, and, and you know, the thing is that opening. The first thing I wrote in my notes was um, uh, this: the the op- that opening number, uh, the traffic number. Um, is basically the litmus test of whether or not you're going to like it. If you don't like this opening number, you're going to hate the movie. I, I didn't even know the movie yet, but I, I knew I loved that number, and I knew that anybody who didn't like this number was probably not going to like this movie. Mm-hmm. It's like a litmus and, test. And I cannot imagine that number being cut. And it was so funny to hear him talking about, you know, they had a cut without it, Tom. It was so funny to hear him say that, because I can't imagine the movie without it. I can imagine it. Uh, uh, any any hitches for you guys? I have a question that was brought up to me. I don't necessarily agree with, but does it does it trouble you at all, or did you even think about this? That okay, jazz is was a is an art form that was uh, created by black artists, mm-hmm. and so the. John Legend plays basically the sellout character in this, and there mm-hmm. were no black characters in whiplash. And so in this movie, the white guy is the one with the creative integrity for the black art form. It's John legend. Was a real guy, by the way, like do people, yeah, yeah. there's some external stuff about him that the movie is playing on. He's a I, real musician. He's a real producer. musician. Oh yeah. Is his but name? No, is he really in a band called The Messengers, or that's just fake stuff? No, no, that's, he's a he's a real he's a big deal guy. Oh, but that's fake, and I I didn't take his character as representing him. I just took him as you know serving a function in the plot. But I wasn't sure what the actor would have thought of that music necessarily. But is that like am I overthinking things? As, as far as this being like two white leads and there not being any uh, minorities in Whiplash. Yeah, and jazz being specifically a black institution, like it was originated by mm-hmm. black artists. Well, I, I would ask you, Kelly Wan, does that bother you? No, but I'm not an expert in the medium. But so you know, I, I mean, you if it's a hitching point, like if it's something that 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 you think of while you're watching the movie, that uh, it, it, like like you you brought it up, so obviously it was something you noticed, I presume. No, it was brought up to me by someone I saw the movie with, and I didn't think it was an issue, and I was curious if I was in a minority, just because I thought it was part of the plot. 
I think another thing that the opening number does in terms of world building is showing us the multicultural nature of Los Angeles. Uh, yeah. You know, the fact that he does, you know, that he dances with the older couple, the overweight woman. Like, it's not I, – I think uh, uh, Damien Chazelle is aware that his two leads are beautiful white people. Uh, and he's not cast them for that reason. He's cast them because they're kind of a proven – uh, quantity and the, the chemistry that they have and how well they work together and Emma Stone having done musicals before. Um, right. I, so they weren't cast because they were white. They just happened to be white. And I think Damien Chazelle took pain That's how I saw it. to show us with the opening number how multicultural Los Angeles is, how multicultural this creative impulse is, that it's not just, you know, the stereotype is that, you know, white Jewish old men run Hollywood. So it's not just about Hollywood. It's also about jazz, uh, which obviously is near and dear to him, as you can tell from Whiplash. Uh, but I, I uh, yeah, it, it, it didn't bother me at all. Uh, but I can kind of see that I, I think he wanted to address that. And that's another function, the opening uh, number and just the inclusion of being a story about jazz. That's part of, I think, what's going on there, I think. It didn't bother me either, and I like the idea. That, like that's kind of what Hollywood is: is you do like one that's creative for you, and then you do one for them. <laughs> one for you, one for you. Yeah, that's a Ryan Gosling's line to J.K. Simmons. Yeah. <laughs> about none for me and all for me. <laughs> um, I guess if, if if in answering your question, Tom, about if there were any stumbling blocks for me, it's the jazz thing, because um, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Uh, uh, I feel like uh, Damien Chazelle's really making this movie. Like, I feel like, are you focusing on me? Um, because of all the times I've tried to like jazz and can't. Um, and that whole thing about her hating jazz, because this whole, you know, this and whiplash uh, and watching whiplash again, I can't, I can't stop watching that end sequence of whiplash by the way just um, if you haven't watched a whiplash please see it just i mean and you won't be able to stop watching that end sequence i mean miles teller is amazing in it and the whole thing is cut and edited so beautifully um but i think damon chazelle's just it feels like he's evangelizing for jazz in some ways um but i've seen this happen in a lot of different ways uh it, in other movies, in TV shows, in books, like this is why you don't understand jazz. This is what jazz is. Let us preach to you about what jazz is. Um, I don't feel like that's what's happening here. I feel like this is more of a, this is a way to get into the character. This is a character element, and maybe I will sneak in all of my passion and love for jazz because of how this character feels about it. Um, but if, if there were, if I were to say there, there was a stumbling block, it would be this, this jazz as perfection thing, because, you know, you know, I don't know, many, many, many years ago when I bought my first Wynton Marsalis out, uh, Wynton Marsalis album, because as a reaction to the fact that he was mad that Sting had been nominated for a Grammy for, uh, Dream of the Blue Turtles. Um, and I felt like, oh, wow, that seems unjust. And I tried to listen to jazz and then I bought some other jazz stuff. I just didn't get it. I don't get it. I still don't get it. Um, and I, and I love that, that sequence of lines where she's like, where he says, you hate jazz. And she said, yeah, I mean, when I listen to it, I don't like it. Uh, she eventually comes to like it because she loves him. Um, and then she like, it goes in different ways, but I think it's, 
it it works in the story, but if anything's a stumbling stumbling block in this movie, it's that feeling of am I being preached to about jazz when I don't really want to listen to jazz. I, I, I would love to listen to the blues. Uh, I'll listen to the blues all day long, um, but I just don't want to listen to jazz that much. Uh, I wonder how much of it, too, is just a metaphor for musicals uh, at large, like the kind of musical he's trying to make, uh, and that that is a, a dying art form. We don't make musicals anymore. Yeah. Uh, and when we do make conventional musicals, I don't, I mean, I don't, I guess Chicago stuff like that does well enough, uh, but that's not really uh, what you know. That, that's not what people go to movies for. That's not what is hugely commercially successful. It's got its thing on Broadway, and that's that's where it stays. So I, I wonder if part of this is as Ryan Gosling's character is his traditionalism is kind of made fun of. Like when Rosemary DeWitt, her her sort of purpose there is to point out how he's kind of a sad sack and he's behind right. the times and he is not being realistic about how he feels about jazz. Uh, and the movie isn't afraid to call him out on that. When John Legend says to him, how are you going to be a revolutionary when you're holding on to tradition? That's not making fun of John Legend. That's not having John Legend be the bad guy who's corrupting the art. Uh, and in fact, that song, which is kind of the sixth song uh, that John Legend sings, that's kind of catchy. Like, that's not a bad song. It's just different from what he is normally doing, and it's not the kind of principles he has, and the movie kind of plays with this idea that it's a bit much when the dancers come out and stuff, but it's still a good bit of music, I thought. Um, so I, I wonder if it's this idea that when you hold on to something like that, when there's something that's antiquated that doesn't really play that, that well these days, uh, sometimes you have to make changes. And I think it's uh. telling that in the end of the, the movie, the club isn't called Chicken on a Stick, it's called Seb's. Right. Um, and I, I, yeah, so I, I don't know as I also don't like jazz, but I loved it in this movie and I loved Ryan yeah. uh, Gosling's passion for it. Uh, and I mainly loved it too, because the jazz in this movie, and again, these are, when you see this a few times, all this stuff comes out, every bit of jazz in the movie is a variation of one of the five motifs. Like the jazz right. is always me and Sebastian's theme or what a waste of a lovely night. Anytime someone is talking about like the creative impulse, they're playing somehow that opening number, Another Day of Sun. They're getting those little riffs in there. Uh, so anytime you're hearing jazz in this movie, it's, it's for kind of a narrative purpose. It's, it's accenting something that's happening at that point in the movie. So I never felt like, because I'm, I'm, I'm like you, Dingus, I don't, I don't get jazz. That's not something that I would listen to, and I, I appreciate the concept of it, but it's just not my bag. So I didn't mind at all the jazz I heard in this, and the preachy bits I kind of could take as a metaphor for musicals. Uh, and this musical being, you know, one which focuses very much on a naturalistic performance between the two lead actors uh, and chemistry. Uh, you know, there, there are bits in this, like that, that dinner argument that they have, at times feels every bit as unscripted as Casey Affleck and Michelle Williams in Manchester by the Sea. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not just doing their lines in a declamatory, hey, we're on stage and this is a, a musical with nifty patter. They're not doing that. It's this supernaturalistic, modern way of two actors interacting with each other. And they won't finish their line or they'll cut someone off or they'll struggle for a word. Um, so I, I don't know if other musicals have that sort of level of naturalistic acting, but that to me felt like it made this very different from what I think a lot of people would expect in a musical. Well, I, I suppose that's very much of a piece then of of the fact that he also is the one who's trying to get her into see rebel of rebel without a cause, um, 
you know, his feeling about that into this old theater. And, and this is something that Chris Markinson says in his email to us is that, you know, he wonders how many people noticed that the Rialto theater had closed at the end, you know, as, as they're driving by it. Um, so, you know, he's, so, uh, Seb, uh, Sebastian's not just talking about jazz. He's also, uh, in love with, you know, other things like rebel without a cause that he's dragging her to, right. to say, wait, you haven't seen this. You don't even know what this is. Um, so maybe it's not just jazz, but it's more of an element of his character. But I do like what you said about his passion about it. How do you guys feel about uh, people flying? Oh, I, I, Kelly, get off again. Quit muting yourself. You're part of this podcast. What's the matter with you? <laughs> Turn on your dang mic. In the movie? Yeah, well, then, yeah, it's a weird scene where, uh, you know, his handkerchief takes off and then he throws her into the air and they're flying. In the Griffith Observatory, which is, you know, the Rebel Data Cause thing. It's great. Yeah, I liked it because I'd just been there right before I saw that scene, so it, it felt poignant to me. Uh, I, for me, it was this. I, so in um, in Punch Drunk Love, there's some sort of magical bits that Paul Thomas Anderson does with like lights turning on and off at the right time, uh, and and actually some some actual physical lighting stuff that he plays with, and you know Barry walking from Los Angeles to Utah, you know, in the course of one night, still holding that telephone. There are bits that uh, are not super realistic. Uh, of course, Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon, uh, right. the whole Wusha thing with just flying around through the air. You know, it's it's. It's kind of based in history, but it's certainly willing to have this kind of magical take on people's physicality. Uh, so when they did that flying bit, and furthermore, when they have set it up, by the first time they touch each other is this bit in Rebel Without a Cause. And I don't know Rebel Without a Cause well enough to know what's going on, where someone is listening to like a lecture about the universe and the, the stars burning out or some huge big cosmic theme. That's when their fingers touch. And that's the first time they touch because they've done that whole opening number on in the Hollywood Hills there. They never touch during that bit, uh, and I think that's important. There's no physical contact between the two of them until their fingers brush up against until they're holding hands mm-hmm. in, in the movie. And then from there, what leads up to that first kiss is this whole like almost cosmic bit where they're flying through the universe, and they're seeing galaxies and stars, and they're a part of them. And there's this idea – that falling in love is is every bit as cosmic as a, a nebula. It's every bit as important as a galaxy. Uh, I just well, we're love made it. of stars, so it's like the primal origins of the universe. We're made of stars. Yeah. yeah. Ew. Yeah. Do you know did, that? Did either of you guys ever see the movie Mood Indigo? You, uh, is that with uh, Gabriel Bernard Gale? Shoot. No, I didn't but, see it. I'm thinking it's, of it's, Michelle, it's a Michel Gondry movie with um, with Audrey Tattoo. Uh, I see it. And um, it, it, that that sequence reminded me of Mood Indigo, uh, and it, it, I, I just think it's it's a it's a fall in love moment. Um, that yeah. a, a whole sequence is is so magical to me, and I just love that you bring up the word magical, Tom, uh, because that whole thing where he takes the handkerchief out and it flies up, and then they fly up. Um, it just I I was I was on board. To be fair, I was on board because of the opening number anyway, uh, and I was just emotionally carried through this movie. Um, uh, but but that particular sequence at the Griffith Observatory, um, when she you know after 
when the movie, when they're at the Rialto and, and she says, I have an idea and they go up there and, and they break in there and all of those things happen in the planetarium. She throws that switch, which is obviously like a prop, uh, all of that stuff. Uh, I was totally on board for that. I was totally in love with it. And I think that that's the point of it. What it kind of reminded me of, Dingus, is you guys remember in Tree of Life, there are times where Terrence Malick, it's a story about, you know, there's this family loses a child. And Terrence Malick mm. at some point just cuts to pictures of the galaxy and there's planets. And then we see the dinosaurs being born. And it's like, <laughs> what? And I think the idea, and we talked about it on the podcast, is he's getting at this idea that that kind of tragedy, the loss of a child, is every bit as significant to someone as the the birth and evolution of the universe and our planet. Like, it's a cosmic experience. It colors how we see the universe, what the universe means to us. It is to us every bit as big as the universe, the the tragedy of that experience. And that's the same kind of thing that I think is being set up with this this flying through the 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 universe in the planetarium sequence. You know, falling in love, it colors how we see the universe. To us at that moment, it is as big as the universe. Uh, it, it, yeah. you know, its size is just as important as all the expanse you can fill between the stars. Uh, and so it just reminded me of what Terrence Malick did with a slightly heavier hand, I think, uh, and less music. It's how a good date's supposed to feel while you're on it. Exactly. Uh, and but it's so, also the expanse of memory, you know, and, or the expanse of imagination. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I think those those lights going down and lights going up, the things that he does with lights, which he does at the end of Whiplash as well, to a lesser extent, um, that, that expanse of how far imagination can go. When you were talking about beefs with the movie, uh-huh. I think my biggest, my only one is it always bugs me in movies when a character is supposed to be established as a really good writer, but you never see like the fruits of their labor. Which always seems like I it. don't think we are establishing her necessarily as a really yeah. Good yeah, I don't think. I so think either. her play is her play supposed to be good, but are too arcane for the general public. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, she gets called in for her performance, not for her writing. I mean, she's brought in to be, uh, you know, the movie's a collaborative process with actors. But uh, I don't think, in a way, I don't think the movie cares one way or the other. But I don't think we're supposed to think that she's a genius writer so much as just Ryan Gosling is so in love with her that what she writes is meaningful to him. Uh, right. There's no objective. There's no objective reality of, uh, as far as her writing is concerned, it's it's her uh, significant other slash lover and her. Yeah, it's not like a nocturnal animals kind of thing, Kelly Wand, where I think. But the casting to... agents like it. The, the casting agents like her performance. Like they like her. her in. Yeah. Uh, and, not and about also, her writing. And I also love just those little touches too, the little gags about what it's like to audition and her getting in the elevator with the other Emma Stone doppelgangers and all that stuff. Uh, but I will say, I kind of, as someone who's auditioned before, I think it's a little unfair that you get these sort of gags in movies about how hostile casting directors are and how hostile it is to go up in front of a casting director and do an audition and everybody's like mean and cold to you. Uh, Because I don't think that's really how it is. That's not been my experience. Uh, It it makes for a a great joke. Um, But the thing about casting directors, there is never a casting director who doesn't want you to be really good. Who's not Now, sometimes they're tired or they're irritable at the end of the day or whatever. But any time I've been up for a casting director, I've gotten this sense, and I think it's important that actors remember this, this person wants me to succeed. They want me to do well. You know, there's never this antagonistic relationship between actors and casting directors uh, that I think it's so often portrayed as. 
so I, that would be like one little hitch I had. Uh, but it, it made for, you know, it made for a good character arc for her. Um, but that's how musicals are too. Like it's always like, like in Singing in the Rain, he's supposed to be like a really awesome dancer, but he only becomes famous by getting blown up and stuff as a stuntman at first. He gets blown up and shot and like murdered in all these movies because he can fall really well because he uses his body and wow. then he, he branches out into dancing from that. Uh, it's interesting, Tom, that you bring up the casting thing because uh, one of our listeners, Chris Webb, uh, said he apologizes to the two of us. Uh, I think that's what CNT, but he, he says he doesn't care about actors not getting parts while holding a steady and somewhat interesting job. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, he say he says I'm guessing I felt similar to how Dingus felt about the Demon, where I found it uh, obvious and shallow. Well, um, I mean that brings. Oh, sorry. Did you have more? Sorry, Dingus. Go ahead. No, go ahead. That brings to mind. So I, I think I mentioned on the podcast. But Mark Birbiglia just did a movie about improv comedy in New York called Technabit. What was that stupid thing called? Uh, I loathe it so much. I intentionally forgot the name. What was it? They look like people, or they might be people. No, no sorry, like that. that. Like. Uh, shoot. Anyway, it's with one of the Key and, P dude, Key and Peele dudes, and Mike Birbiglia is in it. Uh, there's some good character actors in it. But it's this movie where I felt what Chris Webb is talking about. Namely, oh my god, I don't care about these really self-obsessed improv comedians who are so convinced they're funny and I'm not personally finding them funny so I'm not into their whole struggle and the dramatic tension in this movie good lord how much more of this do us it have to go uh, that was sort of my feeling in that movie but I think what it, what gets La La Land out of that and Chris Webb you're a terrible person for saying that because of what I'm going to tell you here I think how La La Land gets around that is just the enormous uh, expressiveness and just how sympathetic I think you're supposed to be if you're a normal human being towards Emma Stone. Like her, I, I, I just because a friend of ours, Dingus, who saw this movie, Charles, he said, because he wasn't as into it, and he said something to us before we'd seen it about, yeah, Emma Stone's face, there's something weird about it. I don't know what's going on. And I think it's just she's got... She's got really big eyes. eyes. She's got really big eyes, but also we've seen her for the longest time because I went back and looked at clips of of her in Superbad because I didn't remember them. She used to have this little round baby face, and she grew up. You know, she's a woman now, but she's still got these big, beautiful, expressive eyes. Uh, And I I don't see how – yeah, because I'm I'm with Chris Webb. I'm not that sympathetic towards actor struggles, uh, but – Emma Stone. I just am so in love with her expressiveness and just the the scenes of her face and how much she can convey uh, is just so compelling to me. I, I love that you said that because we have a, a listener who just wrote in. His name's Alexander Barantine or Barantine. Sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, Alexander. And he says his, the biggest revelation to him was how much emoting Emma Stone can do across a distance. And this, uh, she yeah. says, he says, the script keeps calling on her to act in isolation, projecting her thoughts either at the camera or at another actor standing a long distance away. She's great at it, which really should have been no surprise at all. And I, I like that he says at, at any distance, because the first thing that she has to do twice in two different ways, in two different surprising ways, is to act across a phone call, which is a horrible thing to have to do. I mean, having to act on a phone call is really, really difficult. Having to audition on a phone call and the fact that 
there's this sort of this this wonderful great reveal that Damien Chazelle does with us where we think she's talking on the phone in her car and it turns out she's actually doing sides. Um, and then she's doing that thing on the phone in an audition that's acting across a distance, but it's a different kind of distance. So I love what Alexander Barantina saying in, 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 in conjunction with what you just said, Tom. Well, and that gets at what Kelly Wan was saying about movies where you're just supposed to take it on faith that the writer's brilliant. Uh, we see early on in the uh, audition right. where the casting director misses it because she's worried about her lunch we see in that phone call scene how really good she is we see that this character is a really good actress uh and there's no mistaking that on that fake phone call uh she's like lewin davis yeah you know what kelly Wan? that's a great yeah that's a great parallel that that whole yeah yeah, when he finally rolls out that song for f murray abraham yeah kelly Wan, exactly uh so here let me ask you this why is this movie pg-13 uh, I think some language. What language? I don't know. All right, so there's a point. Here's my only hitch, and it's just because uh, you know I saw this three times in the past week, and I, I plan on going more. I, I, this is like a drug for me. Uh, there's a scene where she <laughs> oh. is like, uh, she says, um, you know, what, what if, what if they don't like it? You know, what if, what if uh, she, she's being insecure about uh, doing her one woman show, and Ryan Gosling says, "Fuck them." And she says, oh, you always say that, but, you know, I'm more concerned about it. They get in an F-bomb. And I've wondered, no, he doesn't say fuck him. He says pishikaka. Like he's got this – he says at one point when when he finds out she hasn't seen Rebel Without a Cause, he says, oh, my. Like that's so quaint and adorable. Like he doesn't say fuck him. I am convinced because it just makes no sense – that they did that, so they got a PG-13 rating. Because without the F-bomb, I could see this movie getting a PG rating and being written off marketing-wise and just public perception-wise as a family movie. Hmm. Uh, it's just my theory that they that they had to stick an F-bomb in there at some point. Uh, you know, I, I love that you said um, that you've seen it. Three times in the last week, and you can see it. it that it's what did you say? It's like a drug for you, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Because th- this movie, uh, and I and I think um, because of the uh, I don't know the reasons that Damon Chazelle is making this movie. Because um, movies used to be shown in a different way than they are now. I mean, it used to just be played. You would come in and buy a ticket, and you would go in whenever the movie was playing, and they would just be playing. Uh, this is a movie I could see myself. Jumping into at any point in a movie theater, uh, like I'm going to have to see a bunch of movies. I mean, happily get to see a bunch of movies this week in, in preparation for doing our lists for you know the top ten movies of the year. Because there's a number of movies I really want to see, and if this movie is playing at a movie theater at any point where this movie is playing, in any point of this movie, I would I would be happy to drop in and watch any any moment in this movie. I would like to watch the whole thing over and over again. But this is the kind of movie that I could drop in at any moment and watch for any duration because I feel so good about it. And I would get exactly what's going on and feel like I was just jumping into the stream or jumping into the river. Emma turned parts of me to stone. One, two, three, not only you and me, got one degrees, and I'm caught in between counting. One, two, three, Peter Pan, Mary Free, getting down with three feet, everybody loves old Kelly, why do you?
Do you remember when you saw Wolf of Wall Street and the whole time thought you were watching Emma Stone instead of Margot Robbie? Yeah, but I knew something was off. That scene, like, wait a minute. They're not that shape. Something's f- funny going on here. Uh, what are, I, I kind of, um, and I think it's just part of this, the magical world. There's a, a notable lack of sexuality in the movie, of course. Like nobody's ever, there's no like love scenes or anything in that. There's no like sex scenes. Uh, and again, that's part of why it's, it could have easily been a PG. Uh, but there are two moments, both involving a yellow dress, by the way, where I was like, ooh, that's kind of hot. You guys know what I'm talking about? They both okay, involve like dancing. So they, yeah, yeah, they both involve a yellow dress riding up. So one of her roommates, a uh, tall girl with a, a British accent, the one in the yellow dress, uh, does yeah. a move over the couch where her dress rides rides way up, and you see a lot of that sort of uh, lovely cappuccino colored thigh. So you uh, went three times to see it. <laughs> but, no, but then there's the freeway. Yeah, and in the freeway, the girl in the yellow dress who leans seductively against the divider, uh, the wind also conveniently blows her dress up at that point, and you see a lot of thigh. And she Not does sort of this. It's a very Marilyn Monroe kind of moment. Yeah, exactly. Here's the thing that bothered me. Uh, they obviously – that was a, a freeway, a two-direction freeway. No, I have never been on a freeway here yeah. where there's a concrete divider between lanes of traffic going in the same direction. <laughs> so I was like, wait a minute. You guys set up the cars wrong. This isn't realistic. <laughs> That's the dance lane. Uh, right. <laughs> Very good, Kelly Wand. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kelly Wand, maybe they could shoot a prequel and explain how the cars got that way. What do you mean? Well, I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us what the 3x3 three three is and we can discuss it some more? I'm very excited about this topic because I came up with it. It's three movies that should have a prequel because most movies shouldn't have a prequel. In fact, no movie should have a prequel except the ones we're about to discuss. Huh. What, what prompted no this topic? No should have a prequel except the ones. So we are choosing here yeah. exceptions to a rule that should remain a rule. We're going to... Mm-hmm. All right, huh. And that people are going to have to live by what we choose. So these are very fateful moments for the film industry. Wow. These are basically movie pitches, and they're the last ones. Like if Prometheus was still in production, they'd have to shut it down unless we recommended it. <laughs> uh, by the way, one of the Prometheus writers, the one who's not Damon Lindelof, uh, Passengers is uh, his latest movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It's terrible. It's so folks hmm. no. Who, who would have thunk? Is it similar? Yeah, other than that, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Are there no, no, no? Does the ship run or fall, and is the ship round like a donut? No, but there, there is a round donut-shaped contrived complex. Is that Jennifer? Jennifer Lawrence? Is that what you're talking about? No, it's a uh, Kelly one. It's a, it's a, it's a reactor. The reactor when it breaks, it's got like a round donut shape of energy, and it's spinning it. around, and they have to vent it. But it's very much uh, like the ship from Prometheus, the shape. Hmm. See. Yeah. What goes around comes around. <laughs> that seems to be the theme of John Spate's uh, script. Yeah. Dingus, oh. why don't you start us off? You heard Kelly Wan. There's a lot of pressure uh, yeah. doing this topic. How are you going to rise to this pressure, Dingus? How are you going to respond? What do you got for us? All right. So my third uh, pick for a movie that needs a prequel, because I think this is a really important topic, mm-hmm. is for uh, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which was oh – Kelly likes it already. He's on board. Kelly's on board. 
It was created in 1999 by um, the director, George Lucas. Wait, Phantom uh, and- Menace was 99? Yeah. Wow, it was before 9-11. I didn't realize that. Ew. Yeah, it, was, uh, it was very prescient. Never forget. Mm-hmm. All right, so I propose a prequel to Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. Um, and the prequel I, I would propose would be, uh, would be titled Star Wars The Birth of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in this movie, we're going to see the emergence of the Jedi. Um, and, and it, it's, the reason it's called the birth of the Jedi is because it's, it's, uh, it's the, it's the introduction of their much hoped for, uh, Messiah, the Jedi yeah. Messiah that's coming. <laughs> right. Uh, is this Darth Vader? Is this Gibson movie? We don't know yet. We don't know. We don't know this yet. This is the prequel to Phantom Menace. Um, and, and this is he who will bring balance, or she, we don't know yet, who will bring balance to the galaxy. Is it before they discovered space travel? Like it's one planet? Like it could be like a Tarantino movie? It's, it's much earlier, and it, it's much more in the sort of, I don't know, production design and design concepts of Rogue One, I would say. Ew. Um, ew. Uh, but so unfortunately, so the Jedi is this, is this, this religious order that's, that's just being birthed. And they're, and they're waiting for their Messiah. Their Messiah is being birthed as well. But unfortunately, everybody in the galaxy is totally consumed with this reality TV show called The Phantom Menace. And so there's this TV show everybody's constantly watching called The Phantom Menace. And it's, and the whole thing about The Phantom Menace TV show is that, um, there are these people in The Phantom Menace TV show called the Midichlorians who vote on who gets to be the next big Jedi. And so the midichlorians get to vote on who gets to be the next big Jedi in this reality TV show. And everybody in the galaxy is totally consumed with this. But in the prequel, The Birth of the Jedi, this is the real world. The Birth of the Jedi is the real world. Phantom Menace is, of course, the reality TV show weird fake world. It's not really a reality TV show. It's kind of a fake TV show world where these midichlorians are all voting on who gets to be the next big Jedi. And the, the, the real Jedi decide to destroy this Phantom Menace world. And so at the end of Star Wars, the birth of the Jedi, the new Jedi order, this, this birth of the Jedi group, who are waiting for their Messiah, go in and they go into the studio and they destroy all of the footage that is the Phantom Menace TV show. So that's my, my prequel would be this it's movie. like Network meets this, Star that, Wars. That totally destroys the, the Phantom Menace. Right. On Legacy, uh, Fantastic Voyage, because they're going to the bloodstream. Right, so my my prequel would be the prequel to um, uh, Phantom Menace that actually destroys it. So the Phantom Menace never happens. Right. Oh, it's like in start like some Star Trek time loop thing rebooty do do Bob. Well, it's not just that. It's it, it the the prequel supposes that everything that goes on in the Phantom Menace was really just a TV show that everybody was watching in the real world. What do you think of that, Kelly Wand? Is Dingus going to jail? No, it's great. I love it. Okay. I don't understand it, but I really like it. <laughs> Dingus, he likes it. a casting agent. Yeah. But why is it called that? Why is, why it, is it called what? 
Why is the reality show called The Phantom Menace? We don't know. We have no idea. Why in the world would uh, they come up with that idea of that title, The Phantom Menace? <laughs> it makes no sense. It has nothing to do with anything at all. It was That's just something that a bunch of reality TV show producers came up with. And then these Jedi are like, hey, why will nobody listen to our cause? Let's get rid of this thing that everybody's paying attention to, because that thing is silly. Are the reality yeah. show people the Sith? No, the reality show people are the midichlorians who are voting on everything. So they vote on Jedi. Yeah, they vote on who gets to be the, the next big Jedi. Mm, okay. The, yeah, the Phantom Menace is basically like the next big Jedi, you know, kind of a thing. But they're, and so the midichlorians are all voting, and so the Jedi who are the in the real world are destroying this TV show because they cannot believe that everybody in the galaxy is paying attention to that instead of what's really going on. Is the show like that Schwarzenegger show, The Running Man, in the movie, The Running Man? Or it's like yeah, wrestlers attacking you in jumpsuits? No, but they have better costumes. Robes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's interesting theory. I like it. All right. We're going into production Thursday. Good job. Good. Wait, who's in this? Uh, we haven't cast it yet. Ted Danson. No, Ted Danson is not in it. I think Emil Hirsch is the only person we have so far. Judd Hirsch. Judd Hirsch will be playing um, his Neil father. Emil Hirsch. Hmm. Audrey Tattoo. All right, so let me write this down. Allison Janney is playing an early droid. Menace. Okay. All right, are you ready for mine, Kelly Wand? Hmm. You have, you have things right. to beat now. First of all, I agree with you that no movies need prequels, so this basically should be an empty 3x3, three three, but I went ahead and did it anyway. So that's how devoted I am, Kelly Wand, to uh, doing the 3x3 three three correctly. It's like a brain teaser. Yeah, so these are so it's movies that should have prequels. That's how we're couching this, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh wait, wait. So it's the prequel that we're are we talking about the movie or the the prequel? We're pitching the prequel. All right. Here, Kelly Wand is a prequel I'm pitching. I would like a movie that sets the stage better in terms of establishing the war between the Persians and the Greeks. <laughs> you know, in the, in 300, the Zack Snyder movie, we we see a battle there. I think we should make a movie that gives us a, a picture of the larger context, you know, the wider war between them. And also, this movie shouldn't be kind of quasi-erotically dude-centric. You know, there should be more female characters in it. There should also be better action scenes. We don't want that slow-mo dolly thing where Zack Snyder just moves a dolly down a fight tableau that's going in slow motion. You know, we want something uh, that isn't trying so hard to look like a Frank Miller comic book. It's breaking out of that. Uh, and in fact, if it wants to be concurrent with the events of 300, that's fine. We're allowing that as well. And I think maybe this movie could maybe have some cool naval combat. Because you know, that's something we don't normally see in a lot of movies, basically for logistical reasons. It's super easy to get a cast of dudes standing around pretending to be Greek and Persian and punching each other. Until we got CG, we couldn't really do cool boat battles. I know so what you're doing. I, I'm proposing a sequel to 300. There you go. That's my number three pick. Would you have Eva Green be in a She would dude? play Artemisia, uh, mm-hmm. a trusted general of uh, the Persian king whose name escapes me. Uh, but we would also have backstory. Xerxes. I'm sorry, Xerxes, right, exactly. And there would be backstory, though, about Xerxes and how he got his power. Because he's this really freaky, weird, cool, tall guy 
in uh, in 300. We want to know more about him. Maybe hear something about his son or something. I think there's something like that. But yeah, Eva Green would be in it. We'd get an Australian actor to play Themistic- Themistocles, Them- Thermos, uh-huh. something like that. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's a movie that should have a prequel, 300. Kelly Wan, what's your number three pick for a movie that should have a prequel? My number three pick for prequel shoulds is um, the motion picture Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, because it's uh, based on the Patrick O'Brien Jack and Steve novels. That <laughs> at the beginning of that movie, Jack <laughs> and Steve already that. know each other. That. They're, they're not what? called Jack and Steve. Jack Stop Aubrey that. and Steve Matterin. Jack and Steve. Nobody calls Jack the Jack and Steves. That, that sounds like a captain. horrible porn. Steve's the phys- Steve's the McCoy, but how they meet's really cool in the books, and it's this iconic moment where they're at a concert together, and Steve like hits. Oh, that's Jack. the part I've read. That is the only part because you gave me that book. That's the only part yeah. of the Master Commander series that I've read is that concert scene. Right, but we need that for the context because they wind up becoming lifelong friends. But it starts with like a meet cue where he hits him. Mm-hmm. She wants a whole movie of them at a concert together. Um, yeah. But just, you know, each chapter is a movie, and then we do all 20 books sequentially, because there's a lot of twists and turns. And then there's like 10 books where it's just one year, because he didn't realize he was going to be writing 20 books. So there's like one, there's like a floating timeline for like 10 books. Floating, get it? Yeah. So that's my number three. Master and Commander, the meeting of Jack, when Jack met Steve. (laughs) Wow. I hope Kevin James is in this version of it. Maybe not Paul Bettany either, because he's a little too handsome for Steve. Steve's supposed to be kind of unsightly. But Jack's cool. Do Russell so Jones. Adam Sandler is Jack Aubrey, and uh, Kevin James is Steve whatever? Uh, David Spade is Steve, obviously. <laughs> okay. And Jack would be Jack Black. So that's my number three. That's right. Dingus, what's your second example of a movie that needs a prequel, that should have a prequel? All right, so my second example is Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. This was in 2002, directed by George Lucas. Uh, in this prequel, the Jedi are really getting annoyed at how well this reality show is still going, even though they destroyed the tapes of the original, the first series. They totally destroyed Phantom Menace, which was the opening uh the opening year, the opening season of the show, but still the reality show keeps going and the Jedi are totally annoyed by it because they're like, Hey, why will nobody listen to us? So, um, so they're totally confounded by the, the whole, the whole, uh, droid armies in the show that, that makes no sense to them at all based on their current technology. They can't believe that this is being touted as, uh, as an original reality show. Um, and they, and they can't believe what's going on with Yoda, who's a real person in their world, who they totally love, but he doesn't act like that at all in real life. And they're totally annoyed by what this Attack of the Clones thing is doing in the reality show with Yoda. So um, they realize that uh, they have to destroy the tapes of the new show. So the Order of the Jedi then uh, in this new this prequel to this is a again this is a prequel to attack of the clones so the order of the jedi go into the studio and again destroy all of the footage of this thing called attack of the clones um 
in order to save the reputation of their beloved Yoda. And uh, unfortunately, their their Messiah has sort of come of age at this point, and um, he's getting a bit randy. So they send him to a dance, and he meets a girl, and a lot of things happen uh, in their real world with their their true Messiah and the girl. And um, so uh, that's going to happen, you know, in another movie. But uh, they do have the true Messiah. Uh, that's part of the movie. But they they go in and they destroy all of the tapes of this this reality show, Attack of the Clones, and uh, make sure that that never existed um, is what their hope is. And so this w- this would be called Star Wars Weekend at Yoda's. Kelly, one, you down with that? Is he going? Yeah, that sounds fun. No, I like it. <laughs> all right. Uh, my number two pick for a movie that needs a prequel, I think we should make a prequel to the Planet of the Apes movies that lays the groundwork for how these apes acquired their intelligence. And by the way, I think in this movie, we should imply that humanity's extinction wasn't the fault of the apes, that it's something that happened, but the apes happened to weather it more than us, and the intelligence that they'd acquired just meant that they persisted. It's not like they rose up and wiped us out. Uh, so I think we should do that in a prequel to Planet of the Apes. That's my number two pick. What, you mean like a plague or something? Something like that, yeah. That's, that's kind of really hot now of days is having plagues or epidemics wipe people out. So yeah, we'll do one of those. We're only going to mention it in the credit sequence, though. We don't really want to make it a centerpiece of the movie. It's just a little sort of a footnote at the end. Yeah. It sounds like it's a plague movie but with apes. And Dingus' sounds like broadcast news meets Videodrome. <laughs> <laughs> Broadcast news or network? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Wan, what is your second favorite example, or your second example of a movie that should have a prequel? My number two uh, prequel idea for a movie is a Godfather four. Uh, wait, what? It's it's a prequel. It's set during like we go all the way back. Why can't we so, call it Godfather Zero? We can. Oh, I like okay. that. Okay. Or negative four. And then it but it takes place in Renaissance Italy. So it's like old school. Kelly Wan, just go see Assassin's Creed, which is out now. That's probably what that is. So this is a prequel to Godfather or to the whole Godfather series? Both. Because Godfather 2 is a prequel and a sequel. And so this is just a prequel. But um, it's like and the what? Beaches, and yeah. it's like they come to power, and it's like Florence... And there's gondolas, like shootouts on gondolas with muskets and stuff. <laughs> and Borges. There's are like there, poisoning. There's are poison there, oranges. Ah, okay. Will there, there be what? cannoli and rolling oranges? They leave the cannoli floating in the canal. <laughs> Take the oranges. And that's, you see the first fish. The, the, you see the, the fish in the first movie that What's-His-Name sleeps with? Like, those fish are still alive in this one. All right. Uh, that's uh, Godfather Zero. Godfather Zero. I get credit for that. I get a producer credit for coming up with the title, by the way. Like the first Corleone. Yeah. Like Fred Corleone. Fred, that's his name. All right. Yeah. Did you so, say what's his name, by the way, for Sleeps With? Yeah. Oh, uh, Luco Brasi. Thank you. Sorry. Tom hasn't seen that movie because he says he doesn't like the musicals. <laughs> I haven't seen the third one. I don't. I don't like Sofia Coppola movies that aren't called Virgin Suicides or Lost in Translation uh, or that thing. Uh, less that thing where Steve. Uh, oh shoot, what's his name? The guy drives around in circles in the car. Nowhere. Shoot, what's that guy's name? 
Gregoraki? No, he's like the he's like a uh, Stephen something. Shoot, Sondheim. No, come on, help me out. The movie was called Nowhere, Kang. wasn't it? Sophia Coppola That's did a, it. Has that that young character actor? He's the villain in one oh, of the Stephen Dorf. You mean Stephen Dorf? No, oh, the guy from Conway's yeah. dwarf character. Stephen Dorf. Steve Dorf. I guess that is his name. Dorf. Isn't that his name? I guess that is him. Anyway, I don't like Sophia Coppola. Well, I don't know, that, but I think for sure, if you're talking about somewhere, yeah. Somewhere, nowhere, whatever it's called, where he drives around a sports car in a circle for an hour in the first part of the movie, which I actually liked that part of it. So, Dermot Mulroney, Dylan McDermott. Those are the ones. Yeah, exactly. There's someone I confuse with Stephen Dorff all the time. I'm not sure who it is. Maybe yeah, it was Christian yeah. Slater for a while, but then Christian Slater kind of broke out of that mold. Hmm. I right. mix him up with someone too, but I forget who. Also, yeah. I think yeah. it's, I it think the, it's Love it or somebody. <laughs> is it that Nick guy from one of the Terminator movies? Nick Stahl? No, he's got his own kind of facial thing going, and right. he's. See, you think of him as Terminator dingus? I think of him as because I'm more highbrow than you. I think of him as the guy from In the Bedroom. He was from an actor. Yeah, but what movie? Hey. Oh, you see what he just did to me, Kelly Wan? Yeah. See? I can't believe I fell for that. I just walked right I, into that. It's like walking into his number three prequel. It's going to be a... Uh, what, what could it be? I don't know. Well, let's find out where he's going with this, Kelly Wan. So, Dingus, what is your number one pick? I would like you to bring this on home and give us your number one pick of a movie that should have a prequel. I feel right, like the casting is- agent at the beginning of La La Land, and he's Emma Stone. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be I'm thinking about lunch. Two minutes? Ju- Less than two minutes. Yeah. I'm just as emotional right now as she was. Uh, all right, so this is from Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Uh, this, I would like a prequel to this movie. Um, in this prequel, the Jedi are totally at a loss. No matter what they do, this weird show keeps going and going and going. The Florence. They- they can't believe that the yeah they can't believe that the midichlorians are still existing, and they want to destroy this show once and for all. Um, but then all of a sudden they find out that their true Messiah Jedi has gotten that girl that he got interest, interested in introduced to in Attack of the Clones prequel. Uh, they got her pre- he got her pregnant. Um, uh, they they met a dance. As it turns out uh, he's a total jerk. Uh, this guy and she, uh, the mother of his children, can't stand him, and so she attacks him and cuts off his arms and beats the hell out of him and throws him in a vat of uh, of trash uh, with a diadoke in it. Um, and the thing chews on him until he's all kinds of uh, messed up, and so they have to get this surgeon to take care of him, and uh, they and they rescue him, and they give him a suit to live in. Uh, he's totally mad, and he misses his kids, and he's so mad that he seeks out the final episodes of this reality show that they've made about this weird alternate universe, and it's called the... Now it's called The Revenge of the Sith, this particular reality show. He seeks out this thing, and he destroys the entire studio. He destroys all of the midichlorians, and then he uh, he goes he, – he's, like, at rock bottom, and he finds a job, uh, like an entry-level job at a store called The Empire. Uh, and he's hired and immediately put in charge of Jedi affairs and plans, and it's a fast-track job, and this this – this movie is called Star Wars Hopeless. And so this this is the prequel that destroys 
Revenge of the Sith, and then, of course, the next movie would be Rogue One. Mm. I'd name the store Emporium, but I'd leave everything else. Wait, does she throw the arms in to the vat of trash, too, for the mm-hmm. Dianoke? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's the the arms actually. What happens is because of the weird uh, radiation that's in there, the arms grow and grow solid. And so when they wind up in the Death Star, those are the arms they use to try to bolster the sides to keep the thing from smashing them. That's that's the irony that happens later on in A New Hope. I like how the third one justifies the first two kind of and makes you kind of reappraise them. Like as a set. That's what I'm going for. Wait, is Binks in a the third one? Binks? Who calls Jar Jar Bink? Binks. First you call yeah. the guy Steve from Master and Commander. <laughs> now you're calling Jar Jar by his last name? I'm always well, I mean Senator Binks. Senator uh, Binks. None of those people exist. That's all in a in a TV show. None of those characters exist. There's no Naboo, there's no oh. Gungan, there's no, none of that stuff exists. That's all part of a television show that was being pro- projected for people, and everybody was totally distracted by this television show. None of this stuff exists in this universe, in this galaxy. All of that stuff is totally made up, and everybody's totally like, oh, mesmerized by it. Oh my gosh, who's this Jar Jar guy? That, that's that's a total fictional character in the actual world of the Jedi. That's a, but everybody is so wrapped that they think it's real. And so the Jedi destroy, destroy all of those tapes, all of those things, and everybody realizes that's not the real world. That's just a reality show. Jar Jar doesn't exist. None of that stuff exists. There's no trade council. There's no like a bunch of like, oh my gosh, this is all about taxes and federations. Blah, blah, blah. None of that stuff exists. This is all just about the Jedi growing as an order and just destroying all of that ridiculous reality television show that is The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. I feel like I've just watched Swiss Army Man, but with less farting. <laughs> you mean more? <laughs> I thought this was all going to come together in like a massive pun, like a great like one-line punchline or something. Well, that's what it was. Star Wars Hopeless. I was waiting for another Because when you get to the center of the fruit, it's the Sith. <laughs> uh, see, well, Kelly Wan just provided it. All right. Well, here's growing together. That's good. My final example of a movie that needs a sequel, I think that those Hobbit, that Hobbit book had some really good stuff in it. So we're not going to do the whole thing. We're just going to do cut to the Battle of the Five Armies. We're going to have just like three hours of CG. We'll have the bit with Smog uh, trashing Lake Town. But I really think even though the Hobbit is weird with Lord of the Rings because you know, Tolkien was just retconning the ring and the Hobbit. was just this innocuous little ring of invisibility. We don't need to see the dishwashing, you're saying. Like a level one <laughs> spell. Yeah, we don't need the dishwashing. We don't need the whatever the love story, although that does figure into Battle of Five Armies. But we're going to do a prequel to Lord of the Rings just with the last part of the movie, The Hobbit. It's going to have a lot of CG. It's going to have uh, Billy Connolly as a dwarf riding on a pig. Uh, one of the elves is riding on a huge old reindeer. There's going to be battles. There's going to be the orcs going to have giant worms. It's going to be awesome. What do the worms uh, do? They like, like a tunnel. They like that's how the orcs get on the battlefield. You said you saw it. They break out of the 
they're like dune worms. They break out of the, the earth, and then the orcs come flooding in behind them. No, I saw it. I just want to make sure that was in your that was the same thing your worms do. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I have in mind. So Kelly, one, no movies. Worms. No I movies go, huh? What? Need prequels. <laughs> I like your your Jaws quote. Mm. All right, so this would be called Lord of the Rings: colon, The Hobbit: colon, The Battle of Five Armies. There you go, Kelly Wan. That's my favorite one. Kelly Wait, Wan, what are the five armies? Uh, okay, I can do this. Uh, the the men from Lake Town, the elves, the uh, the dwarfs, because the, the dwarfs uh, like Thor and Oakenshield's dwarfs. They don't count as an army. They're just some dudes. So let me see. What do I got? Uh, hold on, hold on. Uh, elves, humans, dwarfs. Oh, right. And there's two flavors of orcs. No. Yes, it is. The eagles aren't an army. Yeah, they are. We've had this they're discussion. Air no, there are two flavors of orcs. There are two separate orc armies that come together, that converge on Mount... That's, that's where it's called. That's really four armies, though. No, it's not. It really is. Are you just calling two different armies? Yeah. That's not what Tolkien's doing. That's totally what it is in the book. Battle of five armies. Elf, dwarf, man, orc number one, orc number two. Come on. Yeah, yeah. No one, no one does that. That's how well, it's Kelly one, do you think ever have, has there ever been a battle in which humans have fought humans? In the Lord of the Rings mythos? In no, it's a race mythos. war. In any so history or any mythos, are there ever battles where humans fight other humans and they're in yeah. two separate armies? Um, yeah, I think I got you there, Kelly Wand. Mm-hmm. Say, yeah, but they're not. Wait, wait, wait! You're saying they fight each other in the human versus human, but the orcs aren't fighting each other. They're all one. They never uh, fight. Uh, no, they're not all one, but they're separate armies. Like, for instance, Hitler had multiple armies. Wow. Yeah, like units on a board. Tom, is a Reese's peanut butter cup two different kinds of candy? You bet. Is a documentary yeah. not a movie? Because it's, it's not. Okay. And the Earth has infinite circumferences. Interesting. All two things nail. that I've just said. That's right. Yeah. Kelly Wand, I can't wait yeah. for us to get to the anime that the readers have sent in. So give us your number one pick and then read the anime synopses that have been sent in by the readers. Okay. The listeners, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, they don't read. Well, they could. They could. Like, you could have a transcript yeah. made of the podcast and then read it, I guess. Would they read that? I wouldn't. They, yeah, I wouldn't either. I, uh, okay, my number one is uh, my favorite motion picture, Passion of the Christ. By Mel Gibson, so I would want a prequel to that, but I wanted to do like the Book of Judges, like the really gory one, where uh, there's a lot of like war and stuff, and a lot of like cutting people up. So it's like a Scarface, like it's basically like the Renaissance Italy Godfather, but biblical. Based so gods and uh, that uh, gods and kings thing that Ridley Scott did that. Yeah, but judges <laughs> and Mel Gibson. It is a shame that Moses gets all the press, that we don't go back to some of those stories like about you know, David and Saul. And you still Samuel. don't believe me that he's making a sequel to Passion of the Christ. You'd think that I'm joking, but he really is doing it. Mm, just he's crazy out. enough that I can see him doing that. I can't wait. I can't wait. Because it's going to be like a Matrix Reloaded, because you can fly and stuff. <laughs> I don't think... Okay. <laughs> what? All, all right, Kelly, let's, let's get to some anime. Paul Weber writes, Hi guys, and happy Life Day. Three movies that could use prequels. Number three, Jupiter Ascending. I loved lots of the world building in the movie, which is a mess otherwise, admittedly. If we had more background on we should care about the portrayal of siblings at the center of the conflict or perhaps introduce us to the universe in a more in-universe way. Savia Captain Singh. Nikki Amuka Bird. Mm, 
I smell anime. Or maybe Sean Bean's stinger, Jupiter sending itself, would be more successful. Number two, the Royal Tannenbaums. I think a high school era look at Margot, Chaz, and Richie would illuminate a lot more about the tangled backstories of the characters. Maybe it would reveal too much about them, but I think a teen comedy could be in the making here. Number one, the box. <laughs> oh, Marsden. Is that the Richard the Kelly thing? Yeah. Ew. What's the yeah, box? you warned me off of it, and I watched it anyway. And Is that the one where you like throw a switch and you get a million dollars? No, the the, the thought process thing is, is what if you were given a button, and if you pressed it, it would just kill some random person on the earth? Would you press it? And then they just keep doing it. But then you get like a million dollars, right? Oh, yeah, I guess there is some incentive to do it, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Otherwise, I'll, it's a pretty it's like, here, this is fun. If, yeah. See, I would I'm just almost certain. Yeah, you, you described that to me, Tom. I would just keep that thing on. Yeah, but this one has like aliens and interdimensional portals and stuff at the end. Yeah, there's water. There's water wieners. <laughs> this. The box is an absolute mess of a movie with government spying, mysterious aliens, and strange portals made out of water, and Frank Langella missing part of his face. Maybe a prequel focusing on the start of the social experiment the movie partly seems to be about could make the sense. Could make sense of the disparate interesting threads from the box, set them up and give the viewers some context. I've seen the movie three times. It makes Donnie Darko seem straightforward and simple. Best regards, Paul Weimer. Wait, wait, back up, back up. Paul Weimer has seen the box three times? Yeah. I've done that too, though, where I don't like a movie, like Donnie Darko even. I, I kept re-watching it, going, wait, I want to make sure I understand. Donnie Darko has some craft to it. There's a good cast at work there. And why would you watch The Box three times? That's like saying, uh, you know, I watched The Village three times. Yeah, that's true. It is like The Ew. Village. Wow. Yeah. I do kind of like Paul's idea of, of creating this thing and then releasing it and not showing what actually happens. Like, we're going to create this box that does this. This is the experiment we are doing. I like that idea of a movie that ends with, and we'll see what happens. And then everybody in the theater is wondering, geez, what happened? I just wish that the prequel didn't have a sequel. Mark Doyle writes, Sling Blade, of course. No, I thought of this too. No, I don't. God, I hate this topic so much. Kelly, I don't want to know any of the stuff that went on before Sling. I don't want. Anyway, go ahead. Well, that's what I'm saying. I hate prequels too, and I. I don't know. Arthur Jovan and Jelly, number three. Gangs of New York. Do I care what happened before the events of this movie? Not really, but more Daniel Day Lewis's Bill the Butcher would be great. Uh, number two, Red Cliff. Yeah. Yeah. Three Kingdoms. Ready? You guys oh, mentioned this is going to be that. anime. Shoot. No, it's better. It's the rich man's anime. Uh, such as the Yellow Turban Rebellion. The last time I picked this movie, and they would make for interesting prequels. There's a lot of material before the Battle of Chibi, and it has a lot of cinematic potential. Oh, it's so good. You guys don't know. Number one, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. The events leading up to this movie center on Scott's rocky relationship with Envy Adams, and I wouldn't mind seeing a movie about that, mostly because Envy Adams is played by Brie Larson, and if we're lucky, this fake prequel might also have a generous amount of Anna Kendrick, who plays Scott's sister. Hmm. Yeah. See, so just the girls. That's what he wants for the prequel. I'm on board with that. Can't be any worse than the actual Scott Pilgrim. Chris Webb writes, here are a variety of ideas. Kelly, you can pick whichever three you like. <laughs> a prequel to Jaws. 
Hooper said he'd be a marine biologist in a college sex comedy. He'd end up banging his professor's wife. The Hunt for Red October, chronicling Bart Mancuso's early Navy career as C. Mancuso. C. Mancuso. C. Mancuso. C. Mancuso. I think that, that single-handedly redeemed the topic right there. Yep. Yeah. Well, Good uh, work, Bob. Uh, Avatar, the deliberations of the scientific community when they came up with the name Unobtainium. Apollo 18, the process in which the footage was found, discrediting anyone who would dare label it a footage movie. The Royal Tannenbaums, the adventures of a young Mark. <laughs> rated in C-17, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Markardson writes, Hey guys, I'm following the rules of my number three, but I'm kind of cheating with my other two. Oh, Markardson, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> Thanks, man. Number three, Office Christmas Party. They could go a different direction with a prequel and make it funny. <laughs> Ouch. Wow, for a Canadian, that was awfully vicious of you. Yeah. Wow. You're so, he, starting to sound American there. He wants to show he can do it. He can party <laughs> with the big boys. Number two, I would kind of like to see a prequel to Most Wanted Man. Sadly, Hoffman passed away, but I would have really enjoyed seeing some of his character's earlier missions, especially the one that went really wrong where he lost people. I also think you can make a prequel without doing any violence to a Most Wanted Man. Wait. Somebody just said the first time? I like that a lot. I'd love anything with more Philip Seymour Hoffman, actually. Yeah, seriously. You know what? We can digitally redraw him. Why don't we do that? Let's just make a CG Philip uh, C. Hoffman... Uh, and we'll just use uh, the Tarkin skin from Rogue One. Yeah. And just say that's Hoffman. I mean, the world needs Phil, more Philip Seymour Hoffman, and there's no reason, now that we have the technology as we saw in Rogue One, let's just use that all over the place. Hoffman Cuso. Wasn't he supposed to be in The Night of? I think I've mentioned that before. Hmm. I think you're right. Or, or he wound up being a producer? Well, James Gandolfini was a producer, but for some reason oh. I thought Philip Seymour. Oh, you know what it is? I'm thinking of that thing that Steve Coogan ended up doing. Where uh, he's Catherine Hahn's husband, their husband and wife called I think called Happiness or something. Uh, uh, Philip Hoffman was going to be in that, and it was weirdly sitcommy kind of, but darker. He's in Happiness, the movie. Oh, that's not what it's called. What is that stupid thing called then? Steve Coogan's uh, filled in. I for, believe what you say, and then I get your dumb miss. <laughs> right, <laughs> I stuck in my head. You astray. Do it back to me. Yeah, I do it to you for fun, and then I get it backfires. Fascinating wand. Number one. Yeah, can, yeah, there's no reason that we can't get more Philip Seymour Hoffman. Except the – well, yeah, except the obvious reason. Well, like, no, it worked so well in Rogue One. Let's just do that with everyone who's died. Mm-hmm. We can have more George Michael. Yeah. That was my name gag. Hey, George Michael. It's kind of sad. As I, you know, when he died, I think I was I was watching that, that movie around the time that George Michael actually died. That was sad. I was too, and that's why I chose Andrew Ridgely as my gag. Then you I, don't, I still up. don't get it. What, who is Andrew Ridgely? <sighs> I get someone from Master and Commander that I'm supposed to know who that is. Ah, Bonden, Baron Bonden. You guys are just saying place. words. I do not understand them. Cacafuego. The other half of Wham. Oh. I'm supposed to the know the names part. of the guys in Wham? Yes, you oh, know Michael's in Wham? You know 50% of them. Oh, I, I would not. If you'd asked me who's in Wham, I would have gone, I don't know. Right. 
I think of George lab. Michael's more I thought they were called Wham UK. To just differentiate it. Yeah, it from... says the guy who just called Jar Jar Binks Binks. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> in the bar, you know, you just call people by their title. You know, Binks Darklighter. <laughs> Number one from Chris Markardson. <laughs> Ex Machina. I'd be interested in watching Nathan going through the iterations with his AI before he gets to Ava. I think it would make for a decent horror movie, given some of the video footage we see of what happened during the creation process. I hope the three of you and all the listeners had a safe and happy Christmas. Frankly, I think the value in that would be uh, more dance sequences with Oscar Isaacs. Yeah, seriously. Watching him choreograph that whole thing? Yeah. I think it's Isaac. Him too. And but it's Oscars. Isaac who? Hey. Uh, Kelly Wand, uh, Dingus thought when we were talking about the choreographer for, uh, for uh, La La Land, uh, he <laughs> – at the end, there's a, during the credits, there's um, – I forget if it's City of Stars. Uh, one of the songs, Emma Stone just does a humming accompaniment to it. Uh, and Dingus says he was waiting the credits, credits to see if that was uh, Mandy Moore or something. I was like, why would you think that's Mandy Moore? And he said, oh, because she choreographed it. Uh, so does that seem out of sorts to you, Kelly Wand, at all? No. That's the only one here who knows the names of people from Dancing on the Stars, Dancing with the Stars. Ah, uh, see you did? <laughs> yeah, wait, I don't watch that. So if you had been told that Mandy Moore did the choreography in La La Land, what, what do you get a mental image of? Who do you think is – who are you imagining? That girl from uh, the movie Walk in the Moonlight or whatever it's called. Yeah, that young, like, teen pop chick. That girl? She looks like an owl. Yeah, she's like an owl lady. All right. Well, that, I, I feel sorry for the real Mandy Moore then, because she probably gets that all the time. Uh, really? There, there's a the, Mandy Moore's a choreographer. Not it's not that chick. Who oh, a lot land. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, it's, it's another woman who. Because uh, I actually did think of the owl right. girl. Right. So yeah, she has a. It's like that John Stewart who does that song. Or George Michael's uh, sports machine. Or George Michael on Arrested Development. That's where I went, Kelly Wand, yeah. Exactly. Mike Bolton on uh, Office Space. Office Space, sure. Aaron uh, Vaughn. So was Markinson's the last 3x3 three three submission? No, Aaron Vaughn. Oh, good. Okay, now we'll, we'll get some anime. Here we go. Wow, well, that's a topic. So it's either pick characters you want fleshed out or a universe you want to spend more time in. Putting this together is kind of an unofficial prequel phenomenon where a lead like Mark Duplass may have a role similar enough to another of his movies they feel related in some way. Anyone ever get that? I'll call it the Kelly effect for drawing conclusions out of thin air. Okay. Number three, your sister's sister. The character we never meet may work well as a memory in this movie, but I love the chemistry between Blunt and Duplass. I could go for a heartache you never meant to be about their life before the events that spur your sister's sister. Number two, Green Room. This one goes two ways. I'd love to see how the Ain't Rights formed a band, but would also love a thriller focusing on the politics of double-crossing in the white supremacist group. <laughs> I honestly could not. I would, the last thing I would want to see is watching them come together as a band. <laughs> That's so not yeah. the point of that movie. <laughs> but I like the white supremacist group coming together. Ugh. What? Number one, Bone Tomahawk. I feel oh. we hardly have enough time to spend with the cast of this one. Sign me up for another round of this movie's world. It's writing and relishing in Western minutia. 
Actually, you know what? I, I, I prematurely ugh'd at uh, Aaron Vaughn's suggestion there. I would just like Chicory and uh, Kurt Russell's sheriff's name. What's his name? So Richard Jenkins and Kurt Russell, just uh, shots of them hanging out in the office talking. Just whole sequences. Just, you know, 90-minute movie of just the two of them in the office just talking. Hmm. That's what I want. What about the, his Hateful Eight character? Oh, good Lord. I'm trying to put that movie out of my memory, Kelly Wand. You're not helping. Thanks for the podcasts, Aaron. No anime? Seriously? No one sent in anime no, for you to read? They, they don't need prequels. They agree with me. I guess so. Did you uh, guys runners up, gentlemen. What, what, did, what did we miss? I wanted to do a prequel of Dread, like his first day, because the movie Dread that me and Dingus like a lot with Carl Urban is about Olivia Thirlby's first day, and it's a real epic siege kind of thing. But maybe his first day was even crazier. Kelly, one, I will bet you dollars to donuts there's a comic book about that that you could read. Yeah, but I want to see it. I want to read. You can see comic books. Comic books have pictures. What? They do. I don't. I shut my eyes when I read them. <laughs> uh, I was misspoken when I said before uh, there's a movie out now called Ouija uh, Two, or no, just Ouija Origin of Evil. And at the end, they have a little button that I thought was their attempt to go for a Marvel shared universe. Hmm. Uh, I was mistaken because I have not seen the first Ouija. So the button at the end, I thought was referencing the actress in other movies. Like the Insidious movies. Instead, she was in Ouija, apparently, the Ouija one. So it was just a thing to connect the two movies and make the fact that it was a Uh, So it's the Rogue One of the Ouija. Exactly. And I thought, oh, look, uh, Blumhouse is doing a shared universe with all their horror movies. That's kind of funny. But nope, they weren't doing that. I was misled. Hmm. How do we feel about Paranormal Activity being a prequel? Uh, Paranormal Activity 2. Lame. But we liked it, didn't we? Yeah, but not because it's a prequel. It's just because yeah. it's got some good sequences. And the yeah. third one, I kind of... The third one, even though it's those catfish idiots, I remember kind of liking it. <laughs> even though it's got a kid. That's how Henry Schulman and... Ja, what's his name? Well, that's how they like to be known. <laughs> that's their, yeah, that's their working... Yeah, when they work together as a team. But with the fourth paranormal, I was like, nah, you guys are out. You're dry now. This is terrible. Like, I hated the fourth one. And now I don't want to watch any more of them. Because that was the one where they were supposed to resolve everything. It was like Lost Finale. Is that the one where the grandmas uh, are evil at the end? The evil grandmas? No, that's the third one. I like that one. Oh. Well, I'll put it this way. I like it compared to four. What's the one where they're making a sex tape during the earthquake? Is that the third one? That's the third one. I like it. Tell me one thing that happens in the fourth one. Maybe I've never seen it. What's something that happens in the fourth, fourth one? one? No, you walked into it and you described it to me. And I oh my god, to... no, I have seen the fourth one, right? <laughs> there's like a big, there's like a giant in it named Tommy or something. Or yeah, Steve. yeah, that's right, that's right. And they keep and... saying its name, and you're like, yeah. I go, wait. So did they result? I start asking all these in-depth questions. You're like, no, they just run around from a guy named Cecil or something. Like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and there's, um, I'll watch it. Show him how dumb he is, and then it was like, "Oh my God, Tom's right. That's all that happens in it." Yeah, they see. totally just jettisoned all the stuff they had before. It's weird. <laughs> uh, how would we feel about a Fury Road prequel with just uh, just focused on Furiosa, on Shirley Theron's character? Good. But you still, it's still a bad idea. Like if you know what's going to happen, you just get the thing. Actually, I wouldn't mind this uh, this newly 
revitalized George Miller taking another crack at Mad Max, which is supposed to be, you know, like the, the as society's collapsing, you know, what what yeah. Max is a character. What makes him mad? Yeah. Although, you know what? No, I don't want to know that. Tom Hardy was just so, like, laconic doing that part. I didn't need to know any more information about him. Yeah. I just want to really see George see Miller. I want to see more George Miller action movies. Mm-hmm. That's really all I need. What about the, the Joker? The problem with this for me, I'm sorry, Kelly, uh, is that it's basically the same thing as uh, 48 Hours Earlier. Um, there's very few prequels that really work because it's just how did well, we yeah. get here? It's it's just it's that same that that usually a TV trope of two days before you know you know after we've already seen the opening scene. No, I um, agree. That's the challenge, though. Is is it possible to make one that's right? Not that? And that and, you know, and I liked Rogue One, and you guys didn't. And I like that Rogue One fleshes that out, and you guys didn't care for it. Uh, and I understand that. But I don't most think it's the thing. Time, it never syncs up the way it's supposed to. Like Prometheus doesn't sync up with Alien at all. Well, it tells to- us things, and and I like the way that you guys said this, and this is what I said when we were talking about Prometheus as well, is that it gives us information we really didn't want to know or didn't need to know. And it feels wrong. Like, it's go, wait, that's definitely not right. Like, this isn't what happens in the other movie. This isn't the alien from Alien. You can say that that's what's inside. You can say an engineer's in that thing and all this dumb shit's going on, but... You've already screwed up at least half the franchise. Like, well, everybody looks completely <laughs> wrong. They didn't have this technology then. This robot's different. Like, nothing's the same. Just you wait until Covenant comes out, and then you'll see. I didn't watch that thing. Wait, it's not out yet. How could you have watched there's, it? No, there's a scene from it that's on. Oh, yeah, it's a trailer. Well, of course you didn't. It's a trailer. Why would you watch it? Right. Yeah. But my expectations are so low... I could watch it just because I know now to never look forward to anything because it will always disappoint me. Nice. So I'll watch it tonight. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The thing is, what's the topic we can do uh, next week? Preferably not movies that need sequels. That would just be my vote. I don't know if you're taking any votes, but that's what I would vote for. All right. Your vote uh, gets counted. Kelly, what's your vote? What was the – I vote – I abstain from the U.N., all right, so I vote right, for I'm myself good with as well. Mm. All right, so the next topic is birds. All right, oh. so um, for uh, a previous topic, I did something called favorite animal moments. So um, I have not looked up what our choices were for that, but I will this week, and I will make sure that I send them to you two to make sure that we do not overlap. This this is for our podcast on a movie called Silent House. But this is particularly for just birds. Uh, birds are uh, – I've had a couple of different instances lately where I've had birds going on around me. My girlfriend has a new bird. There's a lot of – there was there was like uh, – I think in the 2020 movie thread, there was um, uh, a frame about the uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie Birds, which I am now taking off the table because that's called Birds. Um, but I love birds in movies. I love the way birds in particular, as opposed to just, you know, any other animal. Uh, but in particular, and this has been going on in my head for some time now. So it's just your favorite uh, moments involving birds in movies. 
Kelly Wand, if you're ever outdoors, like any time after uh, maybe four o'clock, when it's not like midday, out. if you're ever outdoors, any time after four o'clock with Dingus and a bird goes by, Dingus will go, hey, that's a bat. Like he thinks all birds that are still out at 4 p.m., like as it's starting to get dark, are bats. Does he say that during baseball too, when he's watching baseball games? <sighs> so literal. Yes, yes. <laughs> well done. I like. Well, Dingus, I've already got my number one pick. So, uh, what if listeners are like, "Oh yeah, I know a great bird pick." What the, what should they do to participate in the topic? All right, if they've got something bird oriented to uh, contribute to the topic. Wait, hold on, uh, hold on. I do have an important question. Yes, and it's actually relevant to you. Are bats birds? Uh, bats are not bugs, nor are bats birds. Bats are mammals. Tomatoes are. Who would ever think a bat is a bug? Calvin. That's a Calvin and Hobbes thing. He thinks bats are bugs. Yeah, he has to do a pro- he has to do a report. He leaves it till the last minute, and then he starts starts making it up, and he starts writing this amazing intro uh, about bats. These. Uh, these leathery winged bugs that fall upon you and he and he gives his report to the class and the entire class yells at him bats aren't bugs so if one of us uh chooses uh as as our bird topic something with bats would that get us in trouble yeah definitely you don't get to choose and you know i guess you could mess around with dinosaurs if you want to but i prefer modern birds and bats do not count they're mammals all right, so I guess the classic Lou Diamond Phillips bat horror movie is off the table. Right, bats are off the table. If you want to have a bat topic, make your own bat topic. All right. Batter up. <laughs> yeah, none of that. All right, anyway, if you want to send in your bird uh, choices for next week's topic please send it into three by three at quarter to three dot com that's three x three at quarter three dot com and next week we will see uh nocturnal creatures or, or moonlight what do we say moonlight right uh, i thought we said moonlight okay so next week uh we're seeing moonlight join us for that podcast and our three by three of birds mm. interesting enough moonlight and birds don't go together but moonlight and bats that tends to go together, Dingus. <laughs> I should have been more careful. Uh, yeah. Good point. Uh, so join me. Join us for that. I am Tom Chick. I'm here with Christian Merlinski. It's Christian Morosky. And we have Kelly Wand. Hey, if Oprah married Abe Vigoda, her name would be Oprah Vigoda. Dingus, if Darth Vader married Ralph Vader, uh, his name would stay the same because he's a dude. Uh, Tom, is that going to happen every time? I swore an oath to keep it secret. This lie has kept Apocalypse at bay for hundreds of years. We were afraid if the Queen's heart was destroyed, you'd lose your immortality or die. That wasn't your choice to make! Oh. He see he's he moves like a dancer when he talks. <laughs> <laughs>